fellow Astorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is the return of Valar Reredus. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and probably the least understood thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George's style and world-building honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets where we host those discussions, Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. He is in tandem with us every week, adding additional thoughts for each chapter, and his thoughts are part of the writing for each of our main episodes here. Also, same goes for Nina Friel, except that you can find her work on goodqueenalley on tumblr.com. That's with one L. And her work is also a big part of every episode. You can join us on Patreon if you want to offer financial support to the show. Go to historyofwesteros.com. You can find a bunch of different ways and links to support us financially, not all through Patreon, but that is the main one. The newest one is Anchor Support. If you listen through the podcast version, there should be a link in the description to sign up there. There are no fees through Anchor Support. No, uh, There's a lot less frills and a lot. it's a lot more straightforward. So that's pretty cool. And I want to say a big congratulations to Sean Pink and Rita Schlereff for getting married. Hey, it was the pink wedding. Yeah. But can I just say Schillereff? Schillereff. Did I say oh, I can never say that name right. Yeah, it's very hard. It's, it's a hard very name. hard. I really should be able to say it right. Hey, I guess I don't have to anymore. <laughs> yeah, I hope she takes pink. Pink Read is so pink. much easier. Yeah, I don't know if she's decided that, but if she chooses pink, then, well, that's easy. <laughs> so congrats to them. Very awesome. We're so happy for them. Today, we are doing prologue as Veramir lays dying, a.k.a. Second Life Six Skins. Tyrion 1, the imp goes to Pentos, a.k.a. the one with non-poisoned mushrooms. And Daenerys one, the gang meets the Sons of the Harpy, a.k.a. the one with non-sheep bones. This book is 49.3% John, Danny, and Tyrion chapters. That I'm sure y'all realize those were the main three, probably, but you may not have realized that they're just short of half the whole book. And it's with John and Danny, it's pretty evenly spaced throughout the book, but with Tyrion, it's not. We have eight Tyrion chapters in the first half. So he's absolutely the most prominent POV in the first half of the book. Second half of the book, not so much. He's got four chapters only, which is still a lot considering only, I think, five characters total have even four chapters in this book. Second half of the book is when things expand. That's when we pick back up on Feast characters. And so there's a lot more of the one-off chapters, a lot more chapters that are called The Something rather than Tyrion 5 or Daenerys 4. And while A Game of Thrones has nine POVs total, this is a little mind-blowing in, in terms of how much the story has expanded, Dance of Dragons has nine POVs that only have one or two chapters <laughs> and 18 total POVs. So twice as many POVs as A Game of Thrones. And the big POVs missing from this book are Sansa, Samwell, and Brienne, of course. Arianne and Aaron are missing too. I wouldn't say they're as major, uh, although you never know about later. But Dorne and the Iron Islands POVs are present besides them. So those storylines are still covered. 
technically, I suppose you still get a little bit of Brienne too and a shred of Sam. Sansa's pretty much missing altogether from this one though. But we got a spoiler chapter of her in The Winds of Winter and it'll be one of the first ones we cover after A Dance with Dragons, Valerie Reedus. So there you go with what's coming up after A Dance with Dragons, Valerie Reedus. We'll do the TUL spoiler chapters and then we're going to pick up with some of the ancillary material, World of Ice Fire, Dunkin' Egg, Fire and Blood, all that. Let's talk about some themes. Overall with the series first and then with these first few chapters. Perhaps the most brilliant of the many themes in this book is the manner in which George uses the senses to show us the fall of civilization. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm exaggerating a little, but only a little. What I mean is this book expands greatly on sensory descriptions, especially smell because of all the skin changers. There's three if you count Veramir. And what we're meant to we're meant to suffer along with the characters. And what better way than to appeal to the most basic ways in which we interact with the world, with our senses, rather than thinking, rather than using our intellect, this most basic way. It's so fitting that as the world backslides, humanity relies more on sense and instinct than reason and intellect. George takes pains to write it that way. I think that's really interesting. In ideal times, the emotional side of humans is nurtured. But in times of desperation, fear can dominate all other considerations. Rational thought becomes a luxury or a forgotten concept. <laughs> and it, if it remains an inaccessible luxury for too long, that is, rationality, and, well, it's forgotten. It just fades. And, well, then it has to be rediscovered again. And if the long night becomes synonymous with the dark age, well, you, you get what I'm, where I'm going with this. We saw this concept on a, similar, on a smaller scale via recurring themes like the broken man. Like, those are people that have no rational thoughts anymore. They have no hope, and their lives are all desperation. Now, imagine that instead of just the refugees from a few armies, it's a huge portion of the entire continent. Now, of course, we're not there yet, but this is what this book is taking us towards. One of the reasons this book is so dark is that many of the POVs are on their way to dying in this book, or not long after. This theme is played with. In the case of John, whether or not he counts as dead, and well, we just don't know. In Danny's case, she's not dead, but a huge portion of Marine thinks she is, while the other half thinks she's going to return. So it's the question of whether or not she's dead is what they're wrestling with. With her, things are unstable, because as she's a bringer of change, but without her, things are worse. A big theme throughout the chapters especially the first lines. George takes great pains on the first lines. I think the first lines of A Dance with Dragons, he took even more care with, what's, with how they're written and with what they're communicating. Something I never paid attention to before Valeritas, but in this book, it really stands out the most, I think. Lots of references to day and night and weather in those first lines, just in general, of course, too. But really in those first lines, you'll see a lot of that. You'll also see a lot of chapters that start with a line of dialogue, which. Of course, we've seen that before, but it's, it's more prominent here. There's more of it. There's a lot of flashing back in this book, partly because of the new POVs. You got to introduce them. And when you have a new POV, it's pretty standard procedure to give some of their backstory. Of course, in some cases, there's a lot of their backstory. And there's a lot of new POVs. Quentin, Melisandre, Kevin, Barristan, John Connington, Veramir. Even though some of those are one-offs, well, they've got to have that backstory in there at least a little bit. But also, there's a lot of agonizing over the past. Again, Barristan, and again, John Connington. Tyrion, as well. 
And Theon, well, he's rather literal in terms of agonizing over the past, but same difference in that term. Characters we simply haven't seen in a book or so as well. We got to kind of catch up on them. Sometimes things have happened while we haven't been with them, and that has to be explained. Other major themes, famine and cannibalism, those are kind of related because when people starve, they, well, as Euron said, men are meat. There's a lot more disease, of course, and those go together as well. Disease spreads more when there's famine because people's immune systems are compromised and because of winter, because when people are huddled together in winter, well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why that would cause disease to spread more too. So, pale mare, grayscale, those are the two big ones, but there's others as well. On the smaller scale, just regular aches and pains and fevers. uh, Slavery and similar forms of absolute control over others is a major theme. Continued breakdown of social order, which leads to things like slavery. Each successive book has raised the mystical stakes, and this one continues that pattern. Burnings in the names of gods, well, really just one god. Skin changing, of course, more prophecy, plenty of that, lots of other things like Euron's mysticism, which is like the dragon horn, things like that. Before we had open war, open threats, open challenges, battles had somewhat traditional campaigns. Sure, there are sneak attacks, night marches, things like that, but those are all part of traditional campaigns. Now we have asymmetrical warfare, perhaps, intrigue, infighting, mm, threats from within is a, a phrase I think applies pretty well to a lot of different plot lines. Threats from within. Maybe not people who were necessarily loyal ever in the first place. People taking their shots to break free. Perhaps after first being subjugated, now's their chance to become independent again. But sometimes exactly loyal people turning on their formers. Just some examples of that. Danny dealing with the Sons of the Harpy. Good example. Theon finding the courage to betray Ramsay in part because of Mance's infiltration, which is a threat from within. Alongside that is Manderly plotting against the Boltons and Freys, threats from within. John versus Bowen Marsh. Of course, Jon Snow dealing with threats from within the Night's Watch. I'm of the opinion that Arya is a threat to the Faceless Man in the long term, and she's certainly not losing her identity as they demand. So I, I think arguably she's a threat to within. Certainly she's a conflict from within. The Sand Snakes are going to claim seats on the Small Council. Well, that hasn't fully come to pass yet, but the setup is here in this book. And well, talk about a threat from within. Cersei failed in going after her own allies in a lot of places and is planning on turning that back around on them again. I mean, she at the end of this book, she's got her new monster <laughs> and uh, a lot of, well, a lot of revenge planning. Jamie's led astray by Brienne. That's kind of a threat from within of, of maybe an oblique reference to that. Victorian wants to take Danny for himself rather than take her for Euron. I don't know of how big a threat that really is to Euron, but it certainly falls under this category. Asha, too, is seeking to undermine Euron. Now, of course, Euron is probably aware of these things, but anyway. Quentin's arc is a whole slew of events like this. First of all, he pretends to join a sellsword company. Then that sellsword company has him pretend to defect, but he defects for real. And then he's trying to steal a dragon while disguised as brazen beast. So there's just all sorts of subterfuge and changing loyalty from within and what side is he really on and all that. In Tyrion's case, well, maybe he's the one that shouldn't be trusted. Varys and Illyrio are trying to use him. That might backfire on them, especially after Tyrion convinces their boy, Young Griff, to eschew Slaver's Bay entirely and go straight for Westeros. So 
he might be the threat from within there. I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out, but if anyone is, it's, it's, he's a good candidate. And of course, this book ends with one of the biggest threats from within, Varys coming out of the walls to kill Kevin, right? That's pretty straightforward. That's a lot of stuff. This time, just for this few chapters, even in this first chapter, a threat from within, a betrayal, Thistle helped Vermeer, and like literally within, he tries to steal her life from, from inside. And as a child, Vermeer somewhat destroyed his own family. Now, I don't blame him fully for this, but the way it's written, you can see that his ability, the developing of his power was the catalyst for uh, the destruction of his family in a lot of ways. Tyrion, of course, same thing, sort of. Mostly as an adult, he also gets blamed for his mother's death, which is not fair, but he does carry that burden. People do blame him for it. And killing his father, well, that's the blow that starts the sharks circling the bleeding lion. So eh, that's, that one works pretty well too. And no, it hasn't been thrown in her face. Many will place the same stigma on Daenerys regarding her mother's death and childbirth. Of course, she's more associated with her father's madness. That's the thing that she has to overcome as far as a stigma. And when she returns to Westeros, well, the standard stigmas that get thrown at women, young women, women of power, and they're going to throw foreigner at her too. So there's going to be a lot of stigmas that maybe shouldn't be seen as stigmas or definitely shouldn't be seen as stigmas, but, but are. And the same is happening in Marine. They're all denigrating her for the same stuff. She's a foreigner on whichever, <laughs> wherever she goes. She doesn't really have a home. Stigma, of course, no less a theme for Tyrion. It's, it's been there since the second he was introduced. The second he was born, people considered him cursed. It's worse for him now because he's taken a lot of it to heart. Before he was mocked for who he is, but now it's also things he's done. And it's not just inborn traits. I mean, he's seen as a kinslayer and a regicide. Given regicides, it's fitting these early chapters refer to hidden kings. Varamir thinks of John. Danny ponders her dead nephew, i.e. Rhaegar's son, while Tyrion comes in close contact with that plot around that exact kid, or a fake version of him, whatever you prefer. Varamir's chapter broaches many stigmas, but he refers to them as abominations. That's how he was taught. Cannibalism, skin changing into other humans, skin changing to experience animal sex. He... He doesn't actually agree that these are off limits, but he does recognize that other people do. And as he lays dying, he questions himself. But he's still a very, very awful dude. Another is the notion of hate passed forth through the skin changer bond, something that doesn't exist with willing animals, which is all we had seen so far. We'd only seen willing animals in the skin changer bond. Now we know there are unwilling versions, and this concept of ruling over that which does not consent to be ruled is a major theme outside the skin changers of this book, but skin changers as well. Perhaps Daenerys in Marine is the best comparison for this. She's going to grow darker as the situation in Marine also gets darker and bloodier. The more violence she is forced to engage in, the more violent she becomes, right? Pretty straightforward in that case. The more she hates the slavers, the more that hate's going to stick to her. But these are awful, awful people. What other way is there to deal with them? She consistently aims to be good, but it is an epic challenge to reform a place that George R. Martin seems to have likened to hell itself. How do you reform hell? Maybe you can't. Maybe you have to destroy it. I don't know. That's how we framed it all the way back when we first started analyzing Slavers Bay in A Storm of Swords. Now, Tyrion... This is not a guy who's likely to push her in the other direction, meaning, oh yeah, no, let's, let's be more high-minded. This guy is, especially right now, full of bitter hatred. He's becoming more callous to others and himself. 
he's <laughs> it's equal opportunity there, I suppose, as he continues to abuse alcohol and himself in other ways. Danny dished an advisor with similar problems, not alcoholism, but inwardly thinking, bitter, selfish, Jorah, I mean, replaced him with someone nobler, someone more positive, someone more about protecting her than manipulating her, and that's Barris and Selmy, of course. So with Danny and Tyrion, it's more nuanced. We've seen so much of their journey along the way. We have a sense of their challenges and the various forces at work pushing on them. With Varamyr, there's just so much less good in this man. Now, neither Tyrion or Danny are evil. Few in this series are evil. With Varamyr, I think he qualifies. Let's go. Prologue. As Varamyr lays dying, a.k.a. Second Life Six Skins, this is almost a self-contained story. You could read this only and have never read any of Song of Ice and Fire. And, well, a, lot, a couple things wouldn't make sense, but it would pretty much work. And, well, it would be a very dark, short story, but, hey, that's, that's where we're at. It's also kind of an interesting spot in the timeline. We jump back quite a ways, just after the Battle of the Wall when Stannis arrives. This is only a few days after that, or a day after that. And the chapter continues to jump back in time because Varamyr slowly repays his own life while passing into his second life. Second Life is an online virtual world as well. I think George R. R. Martin has played it. And As I Lay Dying is a William Faulkner novel, hence my titles here. This one sets the future tone, not just for Brandon, Arya, and John, at least for skin-changing lore, but the Second Life stuff. I think, you know, I think earlier I said there's three skin-changers in this book. I meant to say four. <laughs> so yeah, four. Varamir is the fourth, yes. And the first line is... The night was rank with the smell of man. Yeah, that man needs deodorant. So many of the problems and darknesses of this book are man-made. Fitting, though, that with that open. Not all, though. Arya is a skin changer who has a strong sense of justice, but men like Varamyr, extremely selfish. There's no justice in this guy. There's his own personal needs and desires, and that's mostly all that matters to him. There are literally over 30 flashbacks in this chapter, and at no point are there memories of tenderness, compassion, joy, love. There's nothing good to build on here with him as a person. It's super interesting, but it's just so very little you can look at and go, well, you can sympathize with him a little bit when he's a child and as he's dying, he does seem to feel some remorse, but it's not clearly remorse to me. Some of it is fear over being punished in the afterlife. So I'm, it's, it's a little of column A, a little of column B. He doesn't really notice the doom of his own people or think of them as his people. It's not that concerning to him. He doesn't even really feel kinship with other skin changers. So this guy is a real loner. And well, there's something about the life of a skin changer that encourages that. As I alluded to earlier, the perspective of smell is important as a centering device for us. We're not in the mind of a human, not right away anyway. We're a wolf to start off. And that happens enough in the series and in this book that it's helpful to really put yourself in that space when you read it and try to grasp what that means. It's hard to fathom how powerful a wolf or dog sense of smell is. It's so, so far beyond our own. But by placing us in that context, we're enabled to see that that's how far from a human perspective a skin changer can stray and how we get concepts like when a skin changer changes into a bird they can just find themselves staring up at the sky a lot. It, it has a permanent impact on them. Going into the skins of animals that have such very different sense organ, organs and ways of interacting with the world, ways that are very alien to us humans, that's going to have a permanent impact on your personality. And it's bigger 
for someone like Vermeer because he's experienced so many more different animals. But there's a lot to let us know this guy has no humanity outside of that. <laughs> I'm not sure George has ever been much clearer than this. Has he ever been this downright evil in a POV? Probably not. I mean, there's characters that I think are worse, but we haven't been in their heads. I mean, we haven't been in someone's POV as they ate a baby as a wolf. Like, whoa, like, how is that? How can you? It's really hard to be worse than that. And Joe Buckley points out, and George says, Winds of Winter is going to be worse. Oh, okay. Nina says, we've seen Bran and Arya through the eyes of their wolves hunting and even attacking people. But in those instances, readers were sympathetic because they're killing bad people and saving the good guys. And this isn't like our opinion that they're bad people. I mean, these are pretty clearly bad people, like the bloody mummers or steersmen who were killing innocents and were about to, you know, murder a bunch of Night's Watch brothers. I mentioned sense of smell, but it's not just that, right? It's the eyes of an eagle, that feeling of soaring above, the massive strength of a bear that no human has ever possessed, the ferocity of a shadow cat, the unity of a pack of wolves. These are things that we just, we just can only try to imagine. We really can't, though. For skin changers, though, it's just one of those things. They have it. It's normal to them. For Vermeer, his breadth of perspective is expansive. It's just so far beyond normal humans. This sensory experience is something that fascinates me, even though we could never possibly explain it. Putting it into words is a huge challenge. This has to be extremely transformative. That's the bottom line. I think that living that way for so long, so differently, is going to change you. And that's a huge lesson for our characters, because how Vermeer has been changed, well, the dude's dead. It doesn't really matter in terms of going forward for him. But for other skin changers and how it's going to affect their personality, that's important. And another sense perspective that's really outlandish from a skin changer, he's felt the pain of death nine times, he says. Nine times. Nine animals he's been in when they died. He says Melisandre's was the worst when he was burned by her flames. Whatever it is for Vermeer could be easily so much more for Bran. Because when we think of Arya, yeah, well, she's skin changed into a cat also. Maybe there, maybe even a seal. Maybe there's going to be a, several animals she does this with. But Bran seems a certainty. A lot. Well, it's not a certainty. He's already done it, not at this point in the story, but in A Dance with Dragons, we see him slip into animals besides his wolves and Hodor. He goes into ravens and et cetera. So how's that going to affect him? And he's a child. He's not an adult like Vermeer. Of course, it started for Vermeer as a child too. And Vermeer was sent away from his family, not like this, not like Bran was, but there are uh, maybe an uncomfortable number of parallels between the, the two of them, but, but still, Bran is nothing like him. What Bran doesn't have yet too, though, is something that Vermeer had for a long time impacting, which is the hatred emanating from these connections. Now, Bran maybe won't feel that as much. Maybe he won't try to dominate animals that don't want to be dominated. But we learn, much to her chagrin, that most animals loathe their loss of free will. And that's a huge point here. We are meant to feel the injustice of even these wild animals. Think about that. If we so intensely feel that a snow bear has been wronged, then what are we supposed to think about humans being treated that way? When a human's freedom is taken away from them, for most of us, that's going to seem a lot worse than a snow bear. But if you so, if you feel for that snow bear, then I, you must feel pretty strongly about the people. I'm right there with you. Even though we see him as a child, 
there are things that one might normally feel sympathy for, but still, he, he he's kind of disturbing even as a child. He's gotten, he started off on kind of a rotten track. His powers maybe made it worse. A child having that kind of power is, well, it's dangerous. And again, that's brand. That's part of the point here. Nina says the prologue underlines again and again, this is not a man to have much of any sympathy for, but rather a thoroughly deplorable person. When he was six, he was jealous of the love and his attention his brother received. Okay, that's normal. It's normal for siblings to have jealousy of one another. It is not normal for siblings to kill each other because of that. Most children grow out of that or learn to live with it. But Vermeer, it's like he never had to because, well, he always had these awful things he could do to deal with it. He never had to grow out of that. He just turned violent. This extreme unrepentant attitude is a glimpse at a few other uniquely terrible people thinking of wildlings and this lifestyle and forced living. You think of Craster on a larger scale. Euron, is he a kinslayer? Uh, Euron and Craster, are they? Uh, I, Euron definitely is. Craster, yes. He gives his kids boys away, so that seems pretty clear too. In Veramir's case, he killed his brother while in a wolf. It wasn't his hand, but I think that still counts. <laughs> I would guess the oh. old gods don't see that as a workaround. <laughs> On the subject of Craster, I have to think that it's possible that one of the women stood up to him at some point and got killed for it, right? Yeah, it's, it seems entirely possible. Yeah. I mean, he may not see it as kinsling. He's like, well, they're not technically dead. They're taken and given a new life. Like, I don't agree with that personally, but maybe that argument exists. One other example here, he, he has guilt, but it's not really guilt. It doesn't register as guilt to him. He doesn't have, that's kind of an alien feeling to him. <laughs> he's like, what is this strange? I feel bad for other people. What is going on here? He just wonders why he's thinking of his brother as he lays dying. It's like, well, that's normally for, for a person to feel guilt over what they've done in their life as it's winding down. But he, to him, he doesn't get it because that's not a normal thing for him. He's not that, doesn't have that kind of sensitivity. But he has fear of his brother's shade. So he does have, that's why I framed it earlier as, I'm not sure if he's really remorseful here or if he's just afraid of afterlife and being punished by the old gods. He argues, hey, look, you gave me these powers, old gods. It wasn't my fault. So it definitely sounds like he's making a case here, right? He, it's, it's not a, it's, it doesn't feel as much like remorse. Although in some places it is. He does seem, say, they, you know, they've seen what I did, these, which means he recognizes that there are wrong things to do. He does, even he, though, sees cannibalism as problematic, though. <laughs> of all the things, even he's like, yeah, that's eating human flesh. He does it as a wolf, but he recognized it as bad. So that's pretty, that's pretty important. Even you have a guy this awful, <laughs> something that even he won't do or thinks is awful. That's, that says a, says a lot. Nina writes, I'm very much in favor of the idea that Euron is also a skin changer and specifically a failed protege of Bloodraven. But even without that, it's clear Euron is someone who embraces supernatural power for his own selfish dark ends. Both Baramir and Euron are jealous, ambitious men, giving themselves new fearsome names to go along with their terrible reputations, no qualms murdering their brothers, multiple in the case of Euron, yeah, and using supernatural means to establish their control over other people, establish supremacy. Well said. She also writes that's perhaps the point of having someone so incredibly evil here as a prologue POV. Because we get to see them beaten, we get, we, maybe we have some hope for how someone like 
Euron will go down, or even the others who are not human. But Varamir is shown to us as incredibly powerful, like those characters are, like the others are, and uncaring about humanity. That's something else they all have in common. Ready and willing to enslave whatever, whoever. Hmm, yeah. But just as we saw the others hesitate at Waymar's blade, we get to see Varamir die in human form, trapped in one eye, the wolf, before being conclusively defeated by Bran. So he takes his master Hagon's second life away very cruelly. That was just so cruel and unnecessary. We learn that wolf that he was having his second life in was an old wolf anyway. It was really pointless. Like he didn't gain anything other than, ha ha, I got you. And boy, that's cruel. I mean, that's just, wow. But he had the same thing happen to him. It was very karmic. He becomes one eye for a very short time. And then Bran's like, nah, you're really powerful, Varamir but you're nothing compared to Bran. And that's another big lesson here. Varamir was notably the most powerful skin changer we've seen at, among the Free Folk. The idea that he's way more powerful even than what the Free Folk have to offer, the culture that has the most skin changers, that is really quite astonishing. And we've been over several different examples of the hints of how powerful Bran is, because he also seems way more powerful than Bloodraven even, which is also really saying something. So... Anyway, so that's nice to know that the brand has that level of power, but it's also a little chilling because that level of power could corrupt him as well. Nina says one last point here that I agree with. As great evil exists in this world, it is nice to know that we have something to fight back against it and the victory is greater when we get a sense of just how bad these people are. It's more of a victory when you have a sense of just how evil they are talk about the free folk just a little bit a lot of detail thrown around with what they're up to the weeper is, is gathering people wants to take the bridge of skulls we see that battle near the end of the book well we don't see it we hear about it from the people who were there hundreds of wildlings have simply gone back to where they came from i mean yikes how how can they do that are, are they just gonna die on the way are they gonna run into the others are they gonna freeze to death but I'm not saying they're stupid for doing this because what other choice do they have? It doesn't seem like they have much. They, they could cross the wall. John offered that, but they have been told for so long how awful it would be for them south of the wall, that the kingdom is not welcoming to them, that they would be enslaved. And of course, irony strikes Mother Mole. She has these visions of fleets of ships take, come to take the wildlings away. Some of them rather than going south of the wall where they fear they'll be enslaved, take these ships and these ships take them away to be enslaved. So really, the wildlings, damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's no wonder Melisandre says, they don't matter. They're a doomed people. Well, when you see things like this, you really get where she's coming from because some of it's straightforward in terms of, yeah, living beyond the wall is about to be nearly impossible because of the others, but even their paths to escape are fraught with the worst results. Of course, this is unusual to us. We've seen slavery all over the world, except in Westeros. Now it seems like it's coming to Westeros, or at least in this case, slaving is coming to Westerosi and taking them away. But this is part of the larger breakdown of society that I'm talking about. It's not just people can't trust each other anymore. It's not just Guest right doesn't mean what it used to. It's not just kin slaying. It's 
some of the worst aspects of human existence like slavery and genocide. Joe wonders how any of this might impact the Skagos plot. Davos and, and the wildlings there, and is maybe he going to be able to do, provide some help with uh, getting them out? I don't know. It maybe doesn't line up timeline-wise enough. But the larger point is that they're just a broken people, like Melisandre says. There's, they're, they're all they're scattered. They're not united. They were barely united in the first place. It took a powerful leader to do that, and he's not dead, but not there, and they think he's dead. And, well, there's a lot more of this to go throughout the series, so that's enough about the Wildlings for now. Certainly, it's going to be a big part of John's story. Vermeer also notes that after the Battle of the Wall, thousands of man's followers are dying of sickness, too. And just the fact that dying is a big deal for them because of what it does for the army of the dead. On the TV show, it's portrayed that the army of the dead is particularly large. It's not necessarily clear where those bodies came from, except that it just had to be wildlings, right? And in this case, there's a little bit more logistics going into it here. We're seeing where this probably large army that hasn't formed yet of the dead, well, we're seeing quite clearly, most likely, where those numbers are going to come from. Baramir never saw the other side of the wall. It's, in, it's really interesting, even with all his deaths, with all his animals, with his power. It's kind of strange to think about that, right? For, for most free folk, that is the way it goes. But it's still just, huh, yeah. His perspective, all these things that we know about south of the wall, we would take for granted that we know these things. Baramir would be like a grit on a lot of these things where she's, he's like, holy crap, that's a big castle. And John's like, nah, it's just a tower. <laughs> you know, things like that. He's probably a little less naive about it because he's older and has seen, you know, things through his bird, but maybe not, maybe not. There's a common theme with green seers and dreamers like Bran and Jojen being born uh, too early, having, uh, or not just being born too early. That's the case with, with Veramir though, but childhood illnesses or injury in Bran's case, he didn't have an illness so much as fell from a tower. <laughs> but Jojen had gray water fever when he was really young. A lump, meaning Baramir, was born premature. And, well, that might be part of where the growing of the gift comes from. It doesn't necessarily explain some of the other characters we've seen, like Arya. But, hey, maybe Bran's, maybe uh, John's powers will go really strong after the... <laughs> dying part. That's, a, that's quite an illness, death, right? So his first death, Vermeer's, was at age six, and that's when he started feeling this hatred and abandonment. Maybe he had felt it before, but that's when he really started feeling it because of the dogs being killed and him killing his own brother. And this is maybe, if you want to denote the point at which he became a monster, a human monster, well, it would probably be this. And again, kinslaying, was that a kinslaying or not? Was he cursed for that? I no, I'm guessing the Kinslayer curse isn't a real thing, just a social taboo, but people put it on themselves. They think of it as real. It's pretty bad. This, like, it's so rotten to read this chapter and be like, no, those poor dogs, damn it. You know, George knows how to really make it sink in. He knows where our sensitivities lie and, and these innocent dogs, what well, makes you feel. What's fun, another irony here, though, of all the awful things Vermeer has done, all the terror, he could make this huge list of bad things he's done, make another list of things that he certainly has done that we don't know about because he couldn't possibly list them all here. But taking um, a cloak from a dead woman, getting knifed for that of all the things he's done wrong, like that's arguably not even that bad. I mean, 
yeah, it was that kid was guarding his mom's body. But hey, like everyone's desperate. Like I really don't begrudge someone taking a cloak from a dead person. Even if you disagree, I'm sure you agree that it's nowhere near these other crimes. So of all the things he's done wrong, this is the one that gets him killed. So it's really just a, a piece of interesting writing from George where he decides to, to show the irony of these things. There's no karma really for the way he did his deeds. He's not killed for the things he did, but he still deserves potentially the suffering and all this pain that he's feeling on his deathbed. Now, here's something really creepy, which is, of course, comes when he's trying to steal Thistle's body, which is difficult for him. And that's so interesting, given what we learn about Bran and how it's not nearly as difficult for him. But with confounding factors, let's lay it out. Thistle, here's her becoming a werewood face, quote. She raised her hands to his face. He tried to push them down again, but the hands would not obey and she was clawing at his eyes. Abomination, he remembered, drowning in blood and pain and madness. When he tried to scream, she spat their tongue out. The white world turned and fell away. For a moment, it was as if he were inside the weirwood, gazing out through carved red eyes as a dying man twitched feebly on the ground and a mad woman danced blind and bloody underneath the moon, weeping red tears and ripping at her clothes. So that's really creepy. Red tears, a bloody silent mouth, weirwood leaves are five-pointed and often described as bloody hands. So you've got, she is the face of a weirwood. She's got all those traits. And it's pretty spooky that he sees his own body lying on the ground there twitching feebly, huh? <laughs> Actually kind of missed that the last time around that he sees his own body. All of our perspective is off here because how do you write two consciousnesses in one body? It's difficult enough for George to show us what it's like to be in, inside an animal. But what is this? This isn't even a real thing. <laughs> Animals do have perspectives, even if we don't know what they are. But two minds in one brain? That's complete fantasy, I, I think. It serves to make the whole moment even more surreal. We just can't understand what's happening. We can't feel what's, what's happening. We can only kind of intellectually try to grasp it. Joe points out the similarities to Catelyn's moment of death, which contains such overwhelming intensity and rage and injustice. In Kat's case, you maybe have more context for her. But with Thistle, even though we don't know her, it's very clearly wrong. I mean, this woman was trying to help this guy, and this is how she's repaid by him literally trying to steal her life. We've had Bran foreshadowing, John foreshadowing, Skin Changer foreshadowing, but Theon foreshadowing is here a little bit as well. Varamir breaks down beneath the stare of the Weirwood, considers all his past crimes. He's, it's one of the few moments where you might consider he has some humanity in him. His judgment day has come, he figures, writes Joe. Way, a good way to put it. At the very least, he recognizes his actions have been bad and that he might be punished for them. Even if it's not remorse, he understands that other people see them as bad. Uh, the gods see them as bad. Even if he won't take the responsibility, he knows that others may force it on him. Theon, well, we see that with Theon when he's in Winterfell later and he hears the rustling and he hears his name even. Perhaps this is a little bit of symbolism to relating to the old gods judging him when Vermeer finds a, a crutch of weirwood and it collapses under him. It breaks, which, yeah, maybe that's a sign of the old gods leaving him. Certainly his life is leaving him. So, you know. Now, here's how the chapter ends. This is really creepy and cool. A wind was sighing through the hills, heavy with their scents, dead flesh, dry blood, 
skins that stank of mold and rotten urine. Sly gave a growl and bared her teeth, her rough bristling. Not men, not prey, not these. The things below moved, but did not live. One by one, they raised their heads toward the three wolves on the hill. The last to look was the thing that had been Thistle. She wore wool and fur and leather, and over that she wore a coat of hoarfrost that crackled when she moved and glistened in the moonlight. Pale pink icicles hung from her fingertips, ten long knives of frozen blood. And in the pits where her eyes had been, a pale blue light was flickering, lending her coarse features and eerie beauty they had never known in life. She sees me. So Thistle is dead, and that alone is a little surprising. Resisting Vermeer's takeover her was too much, and something gave. I mean, her brain, her heart, something just failed. I don't know, but that's, that's a little strange to think about, that the, the, the forcible skin change or takeover fallout from that was that she died. And of course, we get more olfactory overload from the wolf perspective. All these smells, very terrifying. We get our sense of terror through their sense of smell almost, and then from them looking. So it's, again, sense, very sensory here. The fact that they have these blue eyes is scary enough, but the fact that they know where to look, they turn and look right at Vermeer's spirit. It's not his body. In, he's in the wolf, and they sense it. Remember, a big part of this chapter is Vermeer pointing out that any skin changer can sense another skin changer. And here we see this same thing. They sense him, his second life, inside the wolf. So it's yet another source of connectivity between the style that these magics are presented. The connection between the others and children magic seems to have a lot of overlap. I've said it before, bears repeating here. The way I envision it is that the children have, and their magic, magic of the old gods, has power over nature, living nature whereas the power of the others is a corruption of that, where they have power over the dead. And that's why they skin change into dead bodies. All kinds of dead bodies, not just human dead bodies. So, whew, that's so cool. They, or maybe more simply, they smell the life of those wolves. It's just, oh, I smell life over there, and it's those wolves. But I think it's both. I think it's all those things. They smell life, they come for it. We've heard that before. The younger the life, the more they the more it turns them on. <laughs> they really like those babies. But any, anyway, these pieces of lore might be important later on for how humanity fights against the others, how humanity deals with skin changers. Is it possible that an undead skin changer, they can, they can use that power? I don't know, probably not necessary, but there's, there's so much more to learn, but we really like to take stock of what we do know. Varamir himself is wondering about how a lot of these things work. And well, the fact that he doesn't know, well, that tells us a lot too. Some of these things are still mysteries, even to the people that use them or that have the powers. There's a character in the world of Ice and Fire called the Warg King that lived a long, long time ago. And when Vermeer thinks of himself as having had 12 different villages giving him stuff, like basically he kind of ruled over them, I think of this Warg King on a much larger scale as having 12 villages instead of having a dozen villages give him grain and food and beer and women, it would be all this area of Sea Dragon Point. Apparently the War King was in that area, if I remember correctly. And he 
was apparently eventually killed by the Starks. And, but his children were taken and married by the Starks, which a lot of people took that one line of, of writing in the World of Ice and Fire as the, where the Starks get their skin changing in their bloodline. Entirely possible, but I would suspect that it's not just one source for that. Uh, and perhaps you don't even need a source these days. I don't know, but it's a cool theory. Either way, this is not the standard style of kingship. Normally, of a king ruling over land, the deal is as thus. I protect you, you pay me. It's somewhat mafioso, but it's a lot more on the up and up when it's the good version. This is not like that, Veramir's style. Veramir is, I'm the tyrant of the realm, and you give me what I want when I want it. There's no exchange here. There's no, I fight your enemies in exchange for that. There's just, I get what I want, you live with it. That is potentially what this war king was too, a guy that was just so overwhelmingly powerful that he did what he wanted, and maybe that's why he needed to be put down. Maybe not. Maybe he was a decent guy. Who knows? Maybe there were several war kings, and, and this guy was, was an exception. But it's not a dynasty. It's the skin changer bond we see pretty clearly here is not something that gets passed down genetically, at least not in a way that we can perceive. Because Veramir himself points out he had kids with a bunch of different women, and a lot of them were runty, right? Meaning they weren't strong, robust kids, and we associate the weaker children with more likely to develop these powers. But none of them did. So it's not, you can't set up a monarchy under this. So this war king fellow most certainly wasn't like taking over his grandfather's kingdom that had been established 100 years before. No, this guy probably carved it out on his own. When he died, it died with him because there's nobody that could possibly follow up on that. No one could take over his animals. No one could do that. There's probably other skin changes around probably weren't as powerful as him. So it'd be one of those things where the, everything just collapsed with, without him. And this is, this is closer to what we see. This is why we brought up Craster and Euron. This is their style, right? Craster wasn't protecting those women very much. Like, Maybe they were a little protected from the elements. Maybe life would have been worse for them outside because it's just that bad beyond the wall, but I doubt it. I think they would have been better without him. It's very, maybe in Craster's case, maybe you can argue they get a little something out of it. Very tiny something, if anything, but basically nothing. Basically, it's the same thing where he gets what he wants and they just have to put up with it. And Euron, well, hardly need to make that point. Euron is all about that. He wants what he wants. Your desires are meaningless. His desires are everything. So Veramir, like some, Nina writes, like a malevolent local gods, not, not a warlord with, who sent his soldiers to kill you when you didn't obey. This is something spookier and more insidious because it's this inward power that seems to come from the very gods they worship. It's like, damn, why do the gods inflict this guy on us? Why does he have the powers that are being used to tyrannize us. No wonder life beyond the wall can seem, has all these dark aspects to it because it's a rough place to be. I mean, it's so very different. Another last connection to Euron, that Euron is really aiming to be like a god king. It's his power, it's his supernatural powers at the heart of how he plans to exert control. It's almost like Euron's intelligent enough to know that people will never do what I want them to do if all I have to to keep them in line is just regular old brutality, just torturing people and scaring them with the threat of violence is not enough. You need to actually have to be more than them 
Like, Euron is more powerful than the average person because of the supernatural stuff. Veramir has magic. He's not a better person like he thinks he is because of that magic. He doesn't deserve to live because he's a skin changer. He thinks so. But he certainly can impose his will on other people more so than just about anyone else because he has magical eldritch powers. We already know Veramir killed Hagon, but the Second Life stuff is a big deal in terms of other characters. The evil of Veramir is just so overwhelming that it maybe distracts from the fact that some of this is really useful detail and lore. I wonder if Veramir being given away when he was a child and resenting that was part of why he turned on the man that became his mentor. Like he wanted to have that moment of revenge. He couldn't have it on his own family who had died long ago. So he took it where he could. I'm not really sure. There's this quote, I ate his heart and drank his blood and still he haunts me. Well, yeah, that's how guilt works, man. He's like, I beat him. He shouldn't be able to haunt me because I defeated him. It's like, yeah, but that's not how that works at all. You feel guilty because you did that man wrong. He taught you everything you know and you repaid a lifetime of that by stealing his afterlife. Oof, brutal. What, what Theon unleashed on his foster family makes me wonder what Vermeer would have done had his family still been alive. Like, that's where I'm going with this, and there's another thing to connect to Theon. When you're not accepted fully by the family that takes you in, or if you're just a bad kid. And, well, yeah, uncomfortable parallel, but it's there. Three, th three times so far, George has used the same he dreamed an old dream or she dreamed an old dream language. We pointed to the other two when they came up. Ned dreaming of the Tower of Joy, Cersei thinking of Maggie the Frog, Defining memories need provocative language, even for Vermeer, who is clearly not as major a character as the other two. I'll just read them real fast because we've been over them before. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Lyanna in her bed of blood. That's Ned. Cersei, she dreamt an old dream of three girls in brown cloaks, a waddled crone, and a tent that smelled of death. And here, he dreamt an old dream of a hovel by the sea, three dogs whimpering, a woman's tears. In each case, the old dream, there's three knights, girls, or dogs, the location... A tower long fallen, a tent that smelled of death, hovel by the seas, and a woman. Lyanna, the waddled crone, that's Maggie, and the tears of Veramir's mother representing that she's there. Come to find out, George writes the series using Mad Lib. <laughs> One of the reasons to reemphasize this is maybe we're done with this because it's done three times, right? It's a, the rule of three. But if you see this writing again, well, you'll be all ready for it. You will not miss it. You are very well primed <laughs> to see, to catch this particular pattern. A little more on, on Second Life. We talked more about skin changing, but the actual Second Life business as it pertains to John. That's really important because John dies at the end of this book. And well, he seems like the most likely candidate to have that. Here's a couple of takes from Nina. Because Veramir was fostered, so to speak, with an experienced skin changer, he can teach readers the rules of skin changing in a way we haven't really gotten so far. Bran is the most aware of the Stark children of the specifics of his power, you know, by halfway through this book, he does meet someone that can mentor him. But Jojen can't really teach him that much other than to say, you need a teacher. And Hagon, right, things that Hagon and Veramir experienced living the life of a skin changer, Bloodraven may not even be able to teach some of those things because he didn't grow up that way. We, he, may, he may know the powers well, but not the lifestyle, not the culture. We learn that there are different views on skin changing in different animals, which is, this is a really big part of this chapter, including cats that Ari's already done, and birds, which Bran is going to do in this book. 
But we learn that, like I said earlier, the impact this has on the human. And we learn that wolves have an especially strong and unique bond with skin changers. We see that you know, wolves are not quite as easy, but they can adapt to it. They adjust pretty well. And well, that's really important because John's going to be inside Ghost, most likely. Vermeer enters the Weirwood for just a second as he's dying, as his second life begins. And that's just interesting to see the way George writes that. Do you think maybe Old One-Eye, the wolf, is, is meant maybe to be an homage to Bloodraven, sort of a parallel? He's a white wolf with one eye, fierce and, and strong. Uh, as Vermeer overtook his own mentor in Hagen, maybe Bran's going to overtake his, not in the same violent, brutal way, but the student becoming the master kind of thing. That parallel. Here's some more lore and an in-joke by George. Orel had been slain by the turncloak pro Jon Snow, and his hate for his killer had been so strong that Varamir found himself hating the beastling boy as well. He had known what Snow was the moment he saw that great white direwolf stalking silent at his side. One skin changer can always sense another. Mance should have let me take the direwolf. There would be a se- there would be a second life worthy of a king. A king? Ah, King John, maybe? Worthy of... Eh, that's the joke. Good one, good one, George. Vermeer is one of the few to have felt the power of Melisandre. Earlier we mentioned that, burning his Orel's eagle. If John is resurrected using the same magic, will he feel that pain? I mean, one is resurrection, the other is an attack. But hey, it's all the fire of R'hllor. I don't know if there's a difference. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as fire that doesn't hurt. <laughs> and there's a lot of burning in this book, so it would fit the theme pretty well of the flames. It would be a different way to see them used, but we'll see. It's a long-running theory, mostly based on this chapter, that indeed, John will be more wolf-like when he returns from his death slash pseudo-death. Here's a quote that, Wolves were harder. A man might befriend a wolf, even break a wolf, but no man could truly tame a wolf. Wolves and women wed for life, Hagon often said. You take one, that's a marriage. The wolf is part of you from that day on, and you're part of him. Both of you will change. That's big. Both of you will change. That's really big. And think about, apply that logic to what I said about Vermeer, not just becoming a wolf, but snow bear, shadow cat, eagle, and that eagle had the hatred for John still in it. And that's part of why... Faramir's hate for John became a thing because he had Orel's hatred stuck within him. Skin changers by nature become more vicious as they become more like the animals they spend their time with. We see, like, Borok looks like his boar. <laughs> George takes a lot of pains to show us this, this connection and how it grows, and perhaps the longer the connection exists, the more intense it becomes. I, I would kind of think so, like a marriage. Hagon also says that during Second Life, the human part slowly forgets what it was. Interesting. That's very interesting. Like he forgets what he was, kind of like Beric Dondarrion, maybe losing some of his memories every time he's resurrected. Well, what is John going to forget? Is he going to forget some of his humanity? How long is he going to be inside Ghost? Questions for us to tackle when they come. Here's a really good catch by Tree Girl. The same metaphor is used by Bran and Vermeer regarding skin changing. Here's a pair of quotes first from here. Dogs were the easiest beasts to bond with. They lived so close to men that they were almost human. Slipping into a dog's skin was like putting on an old boot. Its leather softened by wear. 
As a boot was shaped to accept a foot, a dog was shaped to accept a collar, even a collar no human eye could see. Now here's Bran back in a storm of swords when he first takes over Hodor. It was not like sliding into summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot on your right foot. It felt all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat, and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathered his legs under him, his huge, strong legs, and rose. But as we'll see when we get to Bran's chapters, in this book, Hodor has become accustomed to this theft of his person as well. Not that he's okay with it. By no means is that the case. He just doesn't fight back anymore. The boot stopped fighting the foot. The boot knows it can't beat the foot. There is no fighting the foot when you're the boot. The themes in this chapter extend to our main characters as well, as we see here. And this is one of those ways that is uncomfortable. Bran here is an example. Bran is stealing Hodor's life in parts, not entirely. It's not like Thistle where it's a permanent thing, but it's it's reminiscent of it. It's, It's not good. Now, Veramir is a lesson in how hate can corrupt a person. He enslaves animals that do not want to have that connection to a human, and that hate goes back and forth between the bond and sticks to them both. Ravens and dogs are okay with it. Some animals are okay with it. So it's not skin-changing. I'm not judging the entire ordeal here, but certainly taking over consciousness that doesn't want to be taken over is pretty clearly wrong if we take our author's lead on it. Like I said, the, with the example of Orel and the eagle's hate passing back and forth, well, it, it's not just a guess that that hate sticks to him. Veramir clearly says so, that Orel's hate became his hate. So what does that mean? It's the same with people. You don't have to have this power to make this work. You don't have to have magical power for this concept to, to land. Some people want to be independent. Some people are more comfortable with a leader. A leader who has consensus can be subject to corruption, but can also grow more responsible, inspired by the responsibility that they're given by their community or by their constituents or whoever they seek to lead. Regard and respect flows both ways. When people appreciate and respect their leader, the leader feels that and it empowers them. The worst will use that as leverage and and steal and do corrupt things, but the best will up their game. It's a two-way street. And so that's what I'm trying to draw a connection to here. When you have a ruler that is hated by their constituents and back and forth, so many things go wrong. And so much of that is really hard to get rid of even after the fact. You still have that hate can still remain. It changes the people. It changes you. When you feel lots of hate, you become more hateful. When you feel lots of love, you become more loving. So when a leader is constantly at odds with those they lead, then it's just nothing good happens. And this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing all sorts of different forms of enslavement, conquest, taking over, dominating. Skin changing is this mystical version of it, but it's very much the same concept that we can apply to to humanity. Look what happens when the second Vermeer dies, or not dies, but loses control of his animals. I'm thinking back to the battle at the wall. The snow bear immediately killed a bunch of people and was trying to kill Varamir before other people killed it first. He wanted revenge. The shadow cat just said, I'm out. Peace out, gone. 
It might have killed Varamir if it had the chance, but it, its freedom was more important. That's it's a like cat. a real cat right yeah. there. Yeah. Cash is like, I'm just getting out of here. He's like, yeah, I'd like to kill you, but freedom way more important. <laughs> the bear's like, nah, revenge. <laughs> <laughs> but that's cool that these animals have, like their different personalities are there. Ghost loves John. So I don't think this is going to be a fight. Like Ghost and John, John thinks about how he's part of Ghost. Ghost is part of him. There's not going to be any contention there. Arya is followed home by a cat that's fond of her. And when she looks through that cat's eyes to see the kindly man, there's no sense of invasion there. There's a, a sense of, yeah, welcome, welcome, Arya. I like you. You can see through my eyes. That's very important. George is going very deep with all these different ways of the concept of leadership and being led and, and coexisting. And it's deep stuff, man. <laughs> The magic from Melisandre brings about a really important aspect of the chapter two. We shouldn't uh, be remiss on that. Uh, second live stuff. Um, we, I really wonder about that. How Vermeer, Vermeer, it's funny, Vermeer died by fire, Joe writes, uh, through Melisandre, and now he's going to die by the power of ice here as well. That's, well, that's what happens when you have lots of lives. You can have lots of deaths too. Nina is very curious what Melisandre did to destroy Orel's eagle. Like, how, can she just do, like, fire there? <laughs> or was it because he's magical, she ignited this spirit within him? Like, could she not do that to a regular eagle? I wonder if it's because he's a skin changer with this soul inside that enables her to do that. Whereas if it's just a regular person, she just can't burst people into flames whenever she wants. I don't know. What sacrifice was within her? We see from her perspective when she was maintaining the illusion of Rattleshirt being burned, it, was, it caused her a lot of pain. She felt that side of the bond. Again, the two-way bond impacting her. That concept applies here as well. So what kind of pain was she feeling when she did that, if any? I, I always wonder, because very often in, in the story, George makes it clear that there's a cost to magic. So when Melisandre does something like that, well, what, what price did she pay? All right, some questions from you guys. Dreadfort Leather says, untreated, a severed tongue is fatal. Okay. I, I, that I didn't know. I could see that just from infection. I, I don't suppose that would be why Thistle died here, though, because it was, it was so fast. I mean, we're talking about minutes later, she's dead. But maybe, maybe she just bled to death that fast. I don't know. Kiljani Galkosh says, lol, Victorian being a threat. <laughs> he reminds me how I used to give my little brother an unplugged controller and made him believe he was actually playing a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. It is, the dragon horn is the controller that he thinks is plugged in. <laughs> I agree, putting threat in quotes there. <laughs> so that's funny. That's a great metaphor, though. Amy Blackfire Super Chat says, so glad to have Valeridas back. What is your favorite moment in A Dance with Dragons? I love reading the part where Tyrion falls into the ruin. Ooh, favorite part. I'm bad at picking favorites. I'm bad at top five, top 10 lists. Whenever there's like a meme going around on Twitter that says like, name your five favorite blanks, I just don't even try anymore. I know my favorites. Okay. Definitely going to be Tyrion on the Roin. Okay, another vote for that. Another vote for that, for sure. And Willa. Willa. Willa Ooh, that is, okay. It's pretty, it's super pretty clear. That Willa moment, that North Rimbers chapter is the most popular chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, according to the poll, the long-running poll on Tower of the Hand. Uh, there's, they've had a, they polled all their readers, which was the most popular chapter is a long-running poll, and that was the winner. So, <laughs> good call by Shea there. That's a nominee for sure. I really like the moment I just described of, of Arya skin changing into the cat and outing the kindly man that way. Like, I know who's been hitting me. And then her response, and he's like, how did you know that? 
How did you know I was the one hitting you? She's like, I already told you three things. And let's say four. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I will try to point out more of my favorite moments as we pass them by since I, I didn't fully answer your question. So we'll keep an eye over that. I'll keep an eye over that. Girl Nettles, good take here. Tolkien made orcs a perversion of elvish, of elves. Their genetics were warped by Sauron or Saruman, both. Uh, George R. R. Martin, uh, she writes, walkers are a perversion of the children. So children control the living and walkers control the dead. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty close. I kind of envision the children as, ta- as controlling humans that they've put that magic into, but same difference. So good. I like this uh, comparison. This is really good. Shout out to T. Solo, Knight of the Cedars, who sent in a donation right before the episode started today. Uh, Laura Brandos notices this line. A great elk trumpeted, unsettling the children clinging to his back. I had missed that before. So that is Bran and Mira and Jojen on the back of the great elk. And this is just all the different things Varamir is seeing as he's dying, like all the different images that pass through as he's passing into nature, the way George writes it. I do not know how I missed that. That is pretty straightforward right there, but boom. That's what you, That's why we reread. Of course, the pattern of prologue characters, there's a few that are held here. Um, books one, three, and five all have a beyond the wall prologue. And technically Chet doesn't die till a little after his prologue chapter, but basically the pattern of prologue chapters, characters dying is holding here. Epilogue characters too also die. So let's not forget. Maybe we wonder, by the way, Maybe one of these times George is going to not have the prologue or epilogue character die and that will be a surprise because we'll have been primed for that. Well, now maybe not now that I've suggested this, but <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Oh, Here Be Dragons is covering the Sworn Sword. Oh, awesome. One of the Duncan Egg stories, the second one. That's awesome. That's really good. Okay, cool. Well, even more reason to check them out than usual. There's always a good reason to check them out, but the fact that they're doing Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire topic is even cooler. Uh, from Stefan B. on Flick, he says, Hagon trades with the watch. Yet another example of commerce between the peoples that flies under the radar. Yeah, very good catch. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, Varamir, it's one of the things Varamir is taught by Hagon is how to do that, or that that's the thing that happens. They trade furs and pelts and dragon glass, things like that. Yeah, there's more commerce between the free folk and the wildlings, or the free folk and the brothers that is hinted at from early on. Like, it's not something, it's, we're introduced to the Night's Watch through people like Ned Stark and, and Gior Mormont, the, the highborn, the ones who don't engage in this uh, lower-end business because it's not officially sanctioned. They, it's the kind of thing they would maybe turn a blind eye to. Like they, maybe they're aware of it, but they don't really want to know about it because if, if it was an official thing, they would have to stop it. But they don't really want to stop it because they, they recognize it as a good thing. That just a lot of lords around Westeros would not like that. They would maybe would stop sending gifts to the Watch if they knew that the Watch was engaged in trade with something, someone they consider an enemy. It's not fair because the free folk are not a, a monolith. They're not all enemies. Some of these people just want to trade and do business, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, interesting catch here, uh, the way Vermeer sees the sky. The th- it's, it's written as a thousand stars and a single moon, which is kind of like a thousand eyes and one, maybe. I want to add to that catch by pointing out another Duncan Egg reference, the Mystery Knight. Blood Ravens were as Maynard Plum. He's got a gemstone around his neck that's kind of like Melisandre's ruby, except it's not a ruby, it's a moonstone. So there we go with the moon again, single eye. Mm, very cool. Uh, also from Flick, 
commenter Meg points out that the old gods religion seems to have a lot in common with Shintoism, which has a lot to do with unity with nature, being part of the stones and the trees and the ground and the wind and the sky, being all aspects of it, which is how, how Veramir feels as he's dying, is very much a, a fit for that. I'd like to shout out Radio Westeros here too. They have a really excellent episode on Veramir. They're the ones who pointed out how, just how many total flashbacks are. I think they counted 37. It's, it's, it's not clear exactly what counts as a flashback because Veramir is just constantly thinking back and where does one start and another begin? But 37 is huge. <laughs> this is a 40-minute chapter and there's 37 flashbacks. It's almost one flashback per minute. <laughs> you could take off 10 of them and it would be a lot. Yeah, right? That's, that's a huge number. So it's pretty awesome. But that uh, episode of theirs is patron only, so, but well, well worth it along with their other content. So check that out if you like. Um, one last thing I would be remiss to let this joke pass by, even though some of you have heard this joke before. George managed to write around this. He mentioned that at one point he was Veramir Three Skins. He didn't give his nickname when he had a fourth animal, because we know it would be Veramir Four Skins, which <laughs> that's just... The chapter, the, the dark aspect of this chapter would be thrown off by that bit of comedy, I think, <laughs> that unintentional comedy. But hey... I love wordplay, so I wasn't going to let that slide. Faramir Foreskins, nice knowing you. And now, Tyrion 1, the imp goes to Pentos, a.k.a. the one with non-poisoned mushrooms. There are also poisoned mushrooms, so non-non-poisoned mushrooms in this one, but those get saved for much later. Mushrooms represent his identity shifts within the book. Here, Illyrio continues the process, started by Varys, of convincing him to join their side. In doing so, he will become Hugor Hill. Now, everyone knows who he really is, of course. Even when he's calling himself Hugor Hill with Griff's company, they know who he is. Even when he calls himself Hugor Hill, when Mormont captures him, they, he knows who he is. But he remains Hugor Hill when he's enslaved and sold, and when he's trying to reveal himself to Brown Ben Plum to get purchased. Like, maybe this guy should buy me, and I'll get out of here. Of course, the yellow whale outbids Brown Ben Plum. As a slave, his identity change is more than performative, and it's as a slave that this particular identity arc resolves. When he feeds the poison mushrooms to nurse in his 10th chapter, he is a free man again, and as he feeds him those mushrooms, he says a Lannister always pays his debts as if to evoke the return of Tyrion Lannister shedding away Hugor Hill. And I wonder what debts he's going to feel he owes Illyrio and Varys figures out some of the things that we're going to discuss here, which is that, as usual, Varus and Illyrio are not your friend. <laughs> There's a huge amount of intrigue in this chapter that makes it a lot of fun to reread because the first time through, maybe even the second or third time through, there's so much going on that you feel maybe a little lost and like, am I missing something here? The answer is yes, you were probably missing something. I was missing something. We're all, we were all missing things. But each successive reread, you can really... Play with it with a lot more confidence. You can really understand a lot more of what's happening. You have a lot better sense over all this intrigue. And it really is amazing when you have that sense of clarity. more Because you get to spend more time considering what's there and less time just figuring it out. Now, figuring it out is fun too, but I think there's something to be said for having figured out to a certain degree. Let's not pretend like we've got it all figured out though. We just know it better than we did the first time or second time or third time. Going from Slaver's Bay as a member of the Second Sons, preparing to join Daenerys is a long journey from where he started. And from an emotional perspective, it's just as true. It's a long journey to get from where he was mentally to where he's going to be. Compare that he starts the book thinking he wants to die 
almost, and only having one real immediate ambition in the short term, which is displayed here with that first line. He drank his way across the narrow sea. Mm. Recall back at, our, at the start of our coverage of A Storm of Swords, we noted that after the Battle of the Blackwater, Tyrion really started to go downhill. Tyrion was at his best in The Clash of Kings, and it's just been downhill since. It's been going downhill for a while now, and several things have started to really pile up. Most prominently, perhaps, is the heavy drinking. That's something that, well, the longer you're a heavy drinker, the worse of a problem it's going to become. That's straightforward as it gets. So this is escalating self-destructiveness. On top of what's probably alcoholism, he's depressed and feeling hopeless and conflicted over his father, Shay, Taisha, a few other things. He's not even sure what feelings to have. Guilt? Justice? Something in between? He starts to think of Jamie, and he has a little bit of self-control there because of all the things weighing on him, he's able to shove that one aside for now. Um, he can't process everything at once. He thinks back to being down in the depths with Varus and telling him he's been killed, or telling him he's killed Shay and Tywin, and he thinks maybe he should have killed Varus too, and I wonder if that line is going to look more meaningful later. Right? Maybe he's going to be like, yeah, I really should have killed Varus then and not gone with him. <laughs> not let him lead me on this path. Like, again, Varus is not your friend. <laughs> so this line maybe looms large later. It looms pretty big now, too. Varus reminds Tyrion indirectly that he had long made Shay in his mind into something she was not. He was, he was living his mind as... He, he was thinking of fantasy Shay, where that person didn't really exist. Vivaris repeatedly brought this up. He's like, man, I do not understand how it is you act with this person. She makes you an idiot. <laughs> he says it nicer than that, but that's kind of what he's saying. And Varus reminds Tyrion, or rather Tyrion's biggest problem with Shay is, yes, he knew what she was, but ignored it completely and went on with, their, with the fantasy version of his relationship, of that relationship. He kept telling himself, oh, this, this, that, but kept doing it anyway. Yet with Tywin, he was forever announcing how terrible he was without having any idea how actually terrible he was. Like, Tywin's worse than even Tyrion knew because, well, he hid a lot of it. Tywin was really good at hypocrisy in that he was able to conceal that he was a hypocrite from so many people. And Tyrion realized both at the same moment, basically. Realized what was really, he kind of came to terms with himself over, over Shay, something he should have known long ago. And with his father, also something he probably could have learned long ago. But he had that revelation while holding a crossbow pointed at his dad. So, yeah. So he's trying to defend himself in his mind as something that had to be done. But he's really, he knows it's not true. He knows he didn't have to do that. And he also knows that whether he did it or not, well, there's still the justice of the gods. There's still the social weight of kinslaying is monstrous. Even when... His father's cruelties were monstrous. That's not a social value. That's not something Westeros crows on and on about, like fa evil fathers being mean to their sons and daughters and wives. That is not, we as readers see that constantly. But it's not something the characters in the world talk about. The plague of bad fathers in our world. Nah, it's true, but they don't talk about it. But they do talk about how evil it is to kinslay, killing your father is totally evil no matter who you are in this world. It doesn't matter how bad that father was. I disagree with that. But that's the world they have. Ivar says, and now you do, when <laughs> he said, when saying uh, didn't, he didn't realize what a hypocrite his father was. That's, as Joe writes, being pretty mild about it. <laughs> Varus being very courtly is like, and now you do. 
But from the reader's perspective, especially rereaders and double, especially if you followed through Valar reread us all the way through, we have just hammered away at Tywin's hypocrisies, both just from a high perspective and singling out specific examples. Wherever whores go is a mantra that bothers Tyrion for much of the front half of A Dance with Dragons, but it's an intentionally undefinable term. The point of the mantra isn't that Tywin was trying to give Tyrion an enigmatic riddle to drive him mad, but rather that Tywin was a man who did not see small folk in general as people. He didn't care. Tysha included, just it really was beneath his notice. That's how he perceives the world. He honestly did not care what happened to her afterwards. Like, it did not matter to him. It doesn't matter one way or another. He's not concerned about revenge from her because she couldn't touch him. He's not concerned about her as a person. It's just irrelevant. It's just another line item on the, the ledger, if that. So the very reason Tywin felt he could do that to a person is an indication of the type of attitude he injected or taught to, well, a lot of people, not just his family, but this is a man who was ruled over many people for a long time in a variety of, of leadership roles. That level of that contempt for common folk that they don't matter type attitude has filtered down to so many people. Tyrion is one of them. The way he treats this girl he finds in, in his room waiting for him is supposed to be a shock. It is. But it's not out of character either. It's not a shock entirely. It's like, oh, Tyrion, that's gross. Don't do that. He's trying to act like the monster they think he is. This is still the trip he's on. And, well, you shouldn't act like the monster they think you are, Tyrion. It's not actually clear that he follows through on this either. The next thing we see at the end of the chapter, they're leaving Pentos. We don't know. Maybe he backs down on this. I don't know. Not trying to give him a pass. Just don't know what happens. It's a very, very disturbing moment. It said twice that she was taught to please the king, this woman, and had done so, past tense. So that's how we know it's not young Griff that we're talking about here. This, is, this, this king they're talking about is Viserys. And we actually see this girl in Danny's first chapter, Nina points out. So we have seen her in Game of Thrones chapter one for Danny. Pretty small little connection there, but we love to point those out when they come by. So yeah, Viserys, which is interesting, right? So this household that has Tyrion has had young Griff live in it, Danny and Viserys as well. So, oof, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of important figures that have passed through Varys's mans. More on that in the middle, or in a minute. Back to Tyrion and his treatment of this girl for a second. He, it's not just the contempt for common people. It's Tyrion emulating his father and paying back personal insults with heavy interest. And this is a bit of a minor twist too. Another person Varys and Illyrio associated with, John Connington. Everyone was led to believe in Westeros, that John Connington drank himself to death in ignominy. Recall, though, that on his first night on the Shy Maid, Tyrion gets drunk, and John Connington's like, you're done with drink. <laughs> this is the guy that was, <laughs> that everyone thinks drank himself to death. Now, actually, this guy's pretty hardcore about not drinking. So, yeah, he definitely didn't drink himself to death. He's quite the opposite. So a different hand of the king in exile is nearly drinking himself to death, and it's the hand of the king who everyone thought did drink himself to death is the one that stops this hand of the king who's actually drinking himself to death from doing that. Woo. Tyrion's excessive drinking is also one of Illyrio's major clues that the imp needs a wake-up call. It's part of why they's, they've seized on this, right? This is their, tear, they can tear him down to build him back up thing and make him theirs almost. He puts mushrooms in front of Tyrion and implies they're poisoned. Tyrion definitely considers them even as he says the opposite. The dwarf studied the dish before him, 
the smell of garlic and butter had his mouth watering. Some part of him wanted those mushrooms, even knowing what they were. He was not brave enough to take cold steel to his own belly, but a bite of mushroom would not be so hard. That frightened him more than he could say. This forces him to come to terms with himself that he does indeed want to live. He, he blurts out, you mistake me. And then he says it again louder as he's gaining his confidence in what he's saying. I have no wish to die, I promise you. I have, his voice trailed off into uncertainty. What do I have? A life to live? Work to do? Children to raise? Lands to rule? A woman to love? You have nothing. Finished Magister Illyrio. But we can change that. He plucked a mushroom from the butter and chewed it lustily. Quite a performance. So right as he says that line, he reveals the mushrooms aren't poisoned. It's theater. This is, they are buying this man's loyalty. They're trying to, or buy his, get him in. They're just trying to win him over. Whatever, however you want to put it. I mean, after all, what good is the self-destructive drunken version of Tyrion to Varys and Lyra? They don't want that dude. That's not very useful to them. I mean, if, if all they wanted him for was his Lannister blood, his claim to Castle Rock, well then... They don't need to involve him in any of this. Just stash him at the manse and wait, right? I'll use him later. That might be why they have Tyrek, assuming they do. So they don't necessarily need Tyrion just for his blood. They want him for his brain, for what he knows, for his capabilities. They want the Tyrion from a clash of kings. That's the man that impressed Varys. That's the guy that they want on their team. That's the one who can help them. This drunken dude isn't much help to them. And frankly, as readers, the Tyrion from A Clash of Kings is probably what we would rather have too. <laughs> that's, that's the more interesting, fun Tyrion. And like I said at the beginning of this chapter, with the mushroom arc of the fake poison mushrooms and then using the poison mushrooms to re-become himself as he kills Nurse, maybe he is. Maybe that's where the end of this book is, has, is showing us. Like he, he joins the Second Sons, he's talkative again, he's signing papers, he's cracking jokes and not the jokes aren't as dark. So that's more interesting. Uh, the version of Tyrion right now is kind of like a hateful miniature Robert Baratheon. There's not much good for anyone. Varys and Illyrio are obviously not new at this. As earlier I said that they just, Daenerys, Viserys, Young Griff, Tyrion, all these people, Connington, the Golden Company, Mormont, they're in the business of importing and exporting Westerosi exiles, all different kinds. They're very good at it. And this is their most important shipment yet, the one containing Young Griff. What's ironic about that is that all these trading and buying and selling of Westerosi exiles, being in the business of Westerosi exiles, this is probably a counterfeit. Their most important shipment is probably a counterfeit. A very, very good counterfeit, though, because again, they know what they're doing. They're experts at this. Tyrion spends a full two chapters with Illyrio, then transitions from talking to him to Griff's company in the third. There are major clues to his plotting with Varus and their history here just from when he's walking around the manse. Let's do that. But first of all, he figures out he's in Pentos by weather and language, which is cool. That's a good example of the type of thought processes that we want more of from Tyrion. That's kind of a moment of clarity where he's like, he narrows it down and he's completely right. And you like that. You like that from Tyrion. You like seeing the process of, of logistically of going through the options and, and smartly, correctly figuring it out, going through his process. That's interesting. I like that. And speaking of interesting, though, this is very interesting, this quote here. Beneath his window, six cherry trees stood sentinel around a marble pool, their slender branches bare and brown. 
a naked boy stood on the water, poised to duel with a bravo's blade in hand. He was lithe and handsome, no older than 16, with straight blonde hair that brushed his shoulders. So lifelike did he seem that it took the dwarf a long moment to realize he was made of painted marble, though his, sh- though his sword shimmered like true steel. So we learn that this is actually Illyrio himself, but as usual, George shows us the statue before telling us who it is. Usually I say he gives us the answer before he tells us the riddle, but this is a similar concept. So on reread here, though, you know it's him when you're seeing this for the first time. You're like, oh, that's that Illyrio statue. The sword probably is true steel, not Valyrian steel as many have theorized in the past. Some people think it's Blackfire. I do believe Blackfire is likely to be in Illyrio's possession, and we'll speak to that in Tyrion 3 when the clues for that or some of the evidence for that comes around. But Valyrian steel is dark. Blackfire is particularly dark because it was burned by dragon flame in Aegon the Conqueror's funeral pile. It's mentioned that it got darker in that incident. This, is, this looks like true steel. It would really stand out if it was like black steel, darkened steel. Tyrion knows what Valyrian steel looks like, right? He's got a really close look at a few different kinds. Most recently, when his father refor- had ice reforged. He got a close look at those. But Illyrio's look itself is probably more important than the sword. Mm, yes. Nina writes, this chapter has our first hints about Aegon and his true parentage, although they're not really clear yet. Given it's a reread, we get to look at the clues as they come in rather than realize we've already seen a lot of clues for the fact that, well, an example here is that there's a bunch of clothes made for a small boy here, which implies that there is a small boy living with Illyrio for a little while. These are the clothes that Tyrion ends up wearing. And the clothes are in a cedar chest inlaid with lapis and mother of pearl, as well as the fact that they're made of rich fabrics. This is an important young person. And they're a little musty which means they haven't been worn in quite a while. So that's Young Griff, most certainly. The implication is that Young Griff is Illyrio's son. There's going to be plenty more clues for that. We'll get to them as they come. But the idea is that Illyrio made this boy with this lover, Sarah, he's going to mention in his next chapter. The servant's refusal to talk to... Tyrion might be for dark reasons. It might just be simple enough. They're ordered not to talk to him, but I favor the idea that they're retired little birds or at least treated the same way, meaning that they don't have tongues. Just consider all those people we talked about that have been through Illyrio's mansion. Daenerys, Viserys, Young Griff, John Connington, all these people have been there. He cannot have his servants talking about that. And sad to say, there is one way to make sure they never talk. And well, it's the same reason those little birds have their tongues removed. So little birds that graduate to adulthood might end up here, or perhaps they're just, these are just different people treated similarly by having their tongues removed. So while getting more and more drunk while, and trying to ply off his pain with witty, cynical talk and teasing and talking to these washerwomen, and he's just talking out loud, he, he, some raw truth actually slips out without any prompting because obviously no one's talking back to him. And he says, she loved me. She was a crofter's daughter and she loved me and she wed me. She put her trust in me. That's it in a nutshell, Joe writes. That's the true hurt. Somebody actually genuinely loved Tyrion, which is all he ever wanted. And he didn't recognize it when it happened and treated it horribly as his father told him to. It was taken away from him and he was part of the reason why himself. He participated in that. 
Now, here's another theory I have here, though. The fact that he blurts all this out in front of these women. Well, that almost certainly gets back to Illyrio, right? He hears about this. And what happens in the next chapter? We get the Sarah story. A sympathetic story about a lost love. Might be knowing that Taisha is the, one of the biggest weights on Tyrion. That he might uh, try to find a little sympathy with the Sarah story. For all we know, Sarah is a nobody. That he just, yeah, we, I needed someone who looked like a Targaryen to make this child with, and that's what happened. This whole thing about being in love with her that he talks about later and saving her hands, he has this locket. It could be real. It could be authentic, but it might just be like, oh, Tyrion's really going to buy this line because we know where his sensibilities lie in his own life. Certainly possible. I wanted to see where, where did Illyrio get Runsford Redwine's private stock? That's that's, uh, the current Lord of the Arbor's grandfather. I think grandfather, maybe great-grandfather. Pretty sure grandfather. Now, it could just be simple, like he just bought it. Certainly, private stock doesn't mean it doesn't get sold. It's just a way to, it's marketing, right? This is the private stock, ooh. But maybe he was like piracy, like Hilario bought it on the black market or something like that. <laughs> One thing comes up is Marcella. I wonder if Hilario knows more that he's letting on. He, he says to crown her is to kill her. And well, Doran Martell said the same thing. Now, this is an indication that they're working together, though they might be. It's just a very straightforward conclusion. Yeah, to crown her is to kill her. Yeah, that's straight. That is straightforward. But does Delirio already know what happened? I mean, we're past the point where Marcella and Darkstar. This stuff has happened already. Uh, Tyrion doesn't know about that, but maybe Illyrio does because Varys told him. That would be interesting. Either way, Tyrion admits that Illyrio's right. That yeah, crowning her would kill her. And what's funny too is that. To crown her is to kill her. It might mean to crown her is to get her killed by us. <laughs> if you crown her, we will kill her. <laughs> Varus might be the one to have her killed. But honestly, the Lannisters have so many enemies like the Sand Snakes that, yeah. In fact, though, uh, as it was in Dorne, when Marcella was almost crowned, it would have made an enemy of other Lannisters. So yeah, <laughs> so many enemies at once. Illyrio points out that even in Pentos, they will feel the impact, political and financial, of what Danny is doing to the slave trade. He's not happy with it. He's not like coming down like, oh, this is bad. But he indicates that it's a delicate web of trade and balance and that any, even a smaller scale change would have a big ripple effect. And it seems like this is a veiled threat against Daenerys. I don't think that uh, Tyrion even catches it. The slave trade exists in Pentos, just not officially. Tyrion does catch that. And Tyrion's tour of various free cities along the way here, which starts now, is where we're going to see a lot of these various forms of bondage. Slavery is not all about whips and chains. Sometimes it's the whips and chains are hidden, as they are here. It's still slavery, it's still bondage. It's really hidden when it's a skin changer bond. But that's why this is a theme that permeates the entire book, because it comes in so many forms. Beyond seeing these forms of bondage, he's going to become part of it. He's going to be a slave for a little while himself. So that's part of his journey here is seeing things he had not been exposed to, things he had been taught to ignore by his father, to see the plight of people who were far beneath him socially. And we can hope he pays attention. I'm not sure he's gonna, but I think there's some hope there. It's an elegant tease on the part of George that he ends with Illyrio hinting at a dragon with three heads, then cuts to Danny in the next chapter. She's not the dragon Illyrio means. George is tricking us, just as Illyrio's tricking Tyrion, though he certainly includes her in his plans, and I think Tyrion is a big part of that because, well, he has all this dragon knowledge. 
He has convincing. He's got the ability to convince. He's just good at this sort of thing. So they have plans for Tyrion. Illyrio does not want her busting up the slave trade, though, and he can't tell her not to do that. But if he can have Tyrion convince Danny to go to Westeros sooner rather than later and marry young Griff, well, then she's leaving all that behind. So they don't have to frame it as don't let her bust off the slave trade. But if they get her moving towards Westeros, so they can encourage her to, to leave Marine, it's the same result. And I think that's a prime expectation they have from Tyrion to get Daenerys to Westeros. Which is ironic because Tyrion is perhaps the biggest reason why young Griff doesn't go to Danny. <laughs> he will suggest getting her to come to him, which might end up accomplishing their goals in that sense. But I don't think many of us are thinking that they're actually going to get married, even much less whether or not, I don't even think they'll ally. They might have an accord. But Danny's the slayer of lies, so yeah, that seems kind of a thin possibility. But maybe. I personally do root for them to get along for a little while. Yeah. Just because Danny has no family. Yeah. I just feel like she'll want it and then she'll, you know, feel disillusioned with it. If she, yeah, if she finds out it's not really her family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I think she'll want it. Yeah, I think so too. She just, she is lonely. That's that's true. The idea of a family member that she didn't know about is going to be pretty meaningful. And as we see in her chapter, she specifically thinks about that what could have been had Rhaegar's son lived. So it seems it might blackfire, I mean, backfire on Varys Illyrio. Not only will Danny and Aegon VI not marry or otherwise ally, prob ally probably, but Tyrion will likely be on Danny's side. So they will have gone through a lot of effort to equip Daenerys, who's going to probably be an enemy. And that has continuously happened for Varys Illyrio. They've done so many clever things, so many great moves, great meaning clever, not ethical, obviously, but their plans have been repeatedly disrupted by things they couldn't predict or control. They're really good at adjusting to these changes midstream. They're fantastic at it. But some changes, some sudden changes, unexpected deaths, some things just are too big for them to adjust to. Can't dodge every shot. It's only a matter of what shot's finally going to hit them, what's going to finally take them down. They want Tyrion to get fired up to take back her father's birthright, I think. That's, that's an angle they're counting on is that he wants to get back to Westeros to take revenge on people who have wronged him. They want to nurture that instinct in him. Come back and destroy your own family. Kill your own sister. Take back what's yours. Yeah, do that. But bring our people along with you for the ride. Infect Danny with that attitude. Get her thinking about the injustice of her father having his throne taken away. Get her fired up about that. She'll abandon trying to stop the slave trade and bring, get more in line with what they've wanted from her all along, which is basically to have control over the Westerosi throne. They want to be the power behind the Iron Throne. I don't exactly know what they want to do with that, but it's just more power and wealth for them. I mean, Illyrio is, it's pretty clear from looking at Illyrio what kind of man he is. That George goes through great pains to show that this is a guy that's highly cunning and clever, capable, but just a, the picture of lust and desire manifested in his, you know, being so overweight and, and corrupt and all that. Joe says, we get a quick reminder also here of the political landscape of Pentos and Illyrio's part in it, being a magister and having a prince and all that and how their system is a little different. We're going to be reminded of this in a little more detail later on because of the tattered prince. The tattered prince left Pentos because he didn't want to be part of this system that ends up killing the prince so often. So it, it made sense for him to leave but eh, 
Illyrio points out how these systems aren't as different as you might think. What one king does, another may undo. In Pentos, we have a prince, my friend. He presides at ball and feast and rides about the city in a palanquin of ivory and gold. Three heralds go before him with the golden scales of trade, the iron sword of war, and the silver scourge of justice. On the first day of each new year, he must deflower the maid of the fields and the maid of the seas. Illyrio leaned forward, elbows on the table. Yet, should a crop fail or a war be lost, we cut his throat to appease the gods and choose a new prince from amongst the 40 families. This is Illyrio's version of the shadow on the wall, power riddle in speech form, less subtle and less complicated. It's not a riddle. In Pentos, the prince is who the nobles say it is. They can be killed if anything goes wrong. In Westeros, it can be the same. And it just so happens they've picked someone out already to be the prince. They've been preparing him for a long time. And if he doesn't work out, well, maybe they can kill him and use somebody else. It's not quite as easy to replace the, the Westerosi system, but it's easier than it was when it was Targaryens before, and it had to be a Targaryen. But now, he's telling you, look, the real power is these people behind the throne. They're the ones that really make the decisions. Tywin has kind of always said the same. It's the people with the armies and the money that if those people are against the king, the king doesn't have power. They can overthrow the king, kill the king, remove the king, do whatever, make it look like whatever, and say it's the will of the gods. Here's another take from Joe that I like. While looking for other escape routes, Tyrion notices the unsullied guards. He even thinks he might like some for himself. So that's not great for Tyrion to thinking getting involved in slave ownership, but I don't think he really is that serious about it. He's just like, well, it sure would be nice to have some, some men guarding me. Now, even if Illyrio insists on calling them servants, not slaves, well, I don't need to go, keep going back to this whole different versions of bondage, but there it is again. Now, ironic, too, considering that Tyrion ends up there, too, but either way, it could be foreshadowing that Daenerys will give him some unsullied, like, a, a detachment of them, or that he'll be in command of her armies or something like that. So... It could be, that could be what's being suggested here. And that would be leadership, not ownership, because Danny doesn't own them, even though they're, they're very loyal to her. That's because she treats them well. It's that whole willing following thing rather than forcible following thing. The unsullied are far more loyal to Danny than they were to those who forced them to be loyal. Danny made similar observations of Illyria's unsullied about a thousand years ago, Joe writes, when she was there, meaning at the beginning of the Game of Thrones. You may recall that Danny once had a discussion with Jorah about the differences in Illyria's unsullied compared to her own, which had grown old and fat. Tyrion makes the natural comparison to Varys and wonders if Varys is also now corrupt. Or rather, Tyrion doesn't wonder that. I think that's meant for us as readers to wonder if this comparison is meant to be uh, carried forward that way. As in, well, these old Unsullied, they used to be badass and strong and powerful, but just standing around being guards and never actually dealing with threats, well, they have gone soft. So, hmm, yes. That's a massive difference in character between the two of them as well. Illyrio is constantly eating, constantly indulging and enjoying himself. I talked about that. He's a, the manifest of desire and lust. But Varus is the opposite. We see him as extremely controlled with his eating and drinking. He sleeps on a bed of stone. It's very much the opposite of Illyrio. And I think that's fascinating that these two tight-knit plotters who have a lot of history together have such a 
dramatically opposite presentation physically like that and what it says about their personalities. Tyrion is enjoying himself a little bit there. It's so good, the food and drink that he's like, wow, he actually thinks this is almost enough to make a man forget he's in hell. And that's part of the point here as well, that Illyrio is kind of a slave to his own desires. He's, he, he, there's, no, there's no outlook here for Illyrio that's really positive. He's never going to have, he's never going to be satisfied. He's never going to have enough wealth. He has so much already and it's still not enough. So when would it be? It never is the answer. It's never going to be enough. He's, he's chasing the wrong dragon. Speaking of food, though, let's look at the opposite side. Illyrio brings up the famine coming to Westeros. It's a huge factor. Almost every POV, it's going to come up in one way or another that it's coming. Jamie's talking about it. Sansa's going to talk about it in her wins chapter. We've talked about it so much before now, just the lack of food. Now, we've never really thought about too much about supplying food from Essos, but is that, how much of an option is, even, is that even? Probably a little bit, but someone like Illyrio is just thinking about it as a way to profit. It's like, whoa, they're going to, price of food will go up. We can make even more money. It's not, uh, it's framed as very cynical here, but it's all part of this giant pastiche of winter is coming. George is setting up some good links between first proper character and final actual chapter in Kevin's prologue. We get bookending of the Varus Illyrio partnership. At the beginning here, we have this introduction of it all. And then at the end, it kind of culminates with Varus shooting Kevin because it's time. It's time to, for the reveal. Young Griff has landed in the Stormlands. The Golden Company is there. They're taking castles. It's time to make his move. All, he's been waiting for this. All sorts of schemes are going to kick off, making Young Griff look good. All sorts of favors called in, all sorts of plots and schemes and assassinations and just going to be exciting. Tyrion also has quite a few parallels with early Daenerys in this chapter, just as he clings to the idea that he'll be taken to Dorne so that he can foment rebellion against his sister. That's maybe where Rayella was planning on fleeing, Nina suggests, when baby Daenerys was born before she died. Now, that may have even been why the name Daenerys was chosen, either from George's point of view, to suggest this to the reader, but maybe in the world, Rayella picked that name to remind Doran of the Targaryen-Martell connection through Meryn and, and Daron, the second sister, who was Daenerys. So both Tyrion and baby Daenerys then found themselves unexpectedly in the free cities and eventually for Daenerys under the care of Illyrio. Both of them were and are completely dependent on Illyrio. While they might have had ancient royal surnames, neither Tyrion nor Danny have, any, have much beside that. They have their bloodline, but no money, no army, no... They need a wealthy benefactor to get going. And that wealthy benefactor is very much looking for a large return on that investment. Both Joe and Nina notice the attempt to speak with the cabin boy aboard the ship as kind of like Arianne and the princess in the tower where they're just stuck in a room and trying to just get anything out of someone and the servant's the only one they can talk to, but the servant's like, nope, I'm not talking to you. And of course, they're both Ending, they're both traveling towards a dragon, <laughs> too. It's kind of neat, meaning uh, Ariane and Tyrion. The poison mushrooms. One more take on this from this one's from Nina. Tyrion find, the, the poison mushrooms teen, uh, Tyrion finds in Lyra's mans are a perfect symbol for where Tyrion's story is going. He struggles in this chapter with what he's living for, as he notes. He doesn't have any lands. He's lost both his wives, and there is no one in his family he loves or even trusts anymore. 
What the mushrooms represent is an alternative, not for Tyrion to use on himself, but to use against his enemies. That's kind of the turning point. He's like, this is not an escape. This is a weapon. And that's, that's well said. The mushrooms are growing out of a crack in the ground of an otherwise pristine mansion in a place where there is no hope of things growing. It's very symbolic. It looks, well, life does find a way. There is a little bit of hope after all, even amidst all this structure and locked down everything, there's still cracks. Illyrio can't cover it all. Illyrio hasn't thought of everything. Varus hasn't thought of everything. There's always something that's out of their control. And sometimes that little thing out of their control is this extremely potent little thing that can bring it all down. A couple of takes from you guys. Michael Shelton says, interesting that mushrooms are connected to Tyrion in this chapter when the character mushroom in Fire and Blood is also a dwarf. Yes, absolutely. That is part of what I was getting at. I think that is why George chose this line of symbolism because, um, well, maybe he had this idea in mind. Obviously, Mushroom appears in the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood, but those books were published after this one. Yeah, that's why I don't do, I don't agree. I think it's just one of those happenstance things that works out. Perhaps George later, after, maybe it goes the other way, that he chose the name Mushroom. Because he had written these because scenes. Because he'd written these, but... Yeah, that might be... That might make of, sense. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe he had invented the character Mushroom already. He just hadn't put him to... There weren't any, he wasn't in any book yet, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's yeah. always possible. Yeah. Seriously, y'all, the idea of being so drunk that the room is spinning and then peeing yourself and being shoved inside a barrel for 30 minutes with all that rolling and slamming, that gives me a shiver. That is just so terrifying. That the claustrophobia and the, I don't handle motion very well. So that is just, yeah, oh boy, that sounds awful. I mean, there's a couple of parallels here, though. Joe points out that it's a bit of a mirror to Eamon, Eamon uh, Maester, Eamon being in a cask of rum. And Stefan B. points to a most likely reference, which is The Hobbit, which George is a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, and that has the very notable scene of all those dwarves riding down the river in barrels. So, multiple dwarves. So, uh, Fasundo Clemente Lipnick writes, Tyrion drinking used to be kind of fun, even. Yeah, it's true. When Tyrion was, early on, when he was drinking heavily, he got into fights with Joffrey and he had all these great one-liners. It was kind of fun then. But yeah, now it's just miserable. Now it's like, oh, this is too real and too... You don't like to see that. It's realistic that he's in this state, but you want him to get out of it. Tree Girl reminds us that Tyrion's drinking is a mirror to Cersei's drinking. Yes, absolutely. Both of these Lannister children are drinking heavily. It's one of Tywin's legacies of many that <laughs> he didn't... He did not equip his children to face certain aspects of the world very well. They're well-prepared with money and uh, nobility and all these other things, soldiers, but personality and internal dialogue, they're not, uh, they're not as well-prepared. Noga Frankel points out Turin's drinking might be why he's fooled regarding which Targaryen that Illyrio is talking about and that he's not actually friendly to Danny. Great point there. I've started to think over the last couple of weeks that we might should do some episodes on just drinking in A Song of Ice and Fire and showing how it's a common thread of a lot of important decisions are made while people are drunk or drinking. Cersei and Tyrion are big, but heck, Jon Snow, his decision to join the Watch was while he was drunk. I mean, he followed through on it while he was sober, but the initial decision was drunk. So there's a lot of examples like that. So we, well, that might be a good subtopic to get into at some point. But yeah, back to this question from Noga. Yeah, we pointed that out earlier. Tyrion is 
didn't catch the references. Illyrio's not talking about Daenerys when he says a dragon that does this and all these glowing praise. He's talking about young Griff. Uh, the reader and Tyrion are both fooled, but Tyrion, if he was sharper, if he wasn't so drunk, he might have caught that. Last part of this, of this chapter that I want to mention is it's so odd to me that Tyrion calls Illyrio a rotting sea cow. It's just a random insult that I wonder if it's a reference to something. So if you have a thought, let me know, because to me, that's just a little weird. Maybe it's how he's going to die. Maybe he'll be found floating face down in the water or something like that. Oh, I like that idea, actually, just that he dies at sea, maybe because, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of sea battles that'll be going on. Yeah. And you could get caught in that. I like that idea. Also, let me just say that there is someone on Tumblr with the username Rotting Sea Cow. So <laughs> if you search Rotting Sea Cow in quotes, you just get their posts. And they're also on the Westeros board. <laughs> so like, I, you just can't find anything about Rotting Sea Cows other than that. What a big problem that is. Can't find anything about Rotting Sea Cows. <laughs> <laughs> Rough life. Okay, and with that, let's go to Daenerys 1. The gang meets the Sons of the Harpy, a.k.a. the one with non-sheep bones. Marine is a lot more interesting when you can keep track of the characters and when you consider it as the Game of Thrones pl being played out in Slaver's Bay. There's a lot of mirroring and familiar concepts from what's happening in Westeros, and some of what we're seeing will come again later, but hasn't yet. To be clear, the phrase Sons of the Harpy has been used before, but this is the first time we are introduced to them as an organization. Before, they were like, oh, we're all Sons of the Harpy because the Harpy is their you know, their national symbol. We're all, it's like we're all sons of the dragon or sons of the lion. It's, it's not an official organization. Now it is. Now it's this guerrilla group that's resisting Danny's rule. And this whole chapter starts with one of their victims. She could hear the dead man coming up the steps. Another single line to kick off a new arc. Another one was something inherently negative to set the, stone, the tone, as with Veramir. This one is about a dead man coming to her, but of course it's not literally a dead man. In this, in this uh, series, you can think of a dead man coming, you think of the walking dead. But this is, she's being confronted by the end of this man's life and what it means. It's damning. She's trying to save people's lives. And here we have another murder, but it's not just another murder from the Sons of the, uh, Sons of the Harpy, but it's an escalation because they're, well, they're killing more important people now. Um, people, that's, it's more provocative. Here's the quote. The sons grow bolder, Danny observed. Until now, they had limited their attacks to unarmed freedmen, cutting them down in the streets or breaking into their homes under the cover of darkness to murder them in their beds. This is the first of my soldiers they have slain. The first. Sir Barristan warned. But not the last. That sentence from Barristan, the first but not the last. Yeah, killing one of her soldiers is also true of the climax of the chapter, meaning we learn that her dragon has killed a child. And that's not going to be the first time her dragon kills an innocent, let alone an innocent child, probably. She knows she has limited ability to stop them, but she does know how to hit back where it hurts, meaning against the slavers. Nina writes, into this, Daenerys has pretty good instincts. Even if there's very few actual solutions here, she lacks the type of army, the type of soldiers that are equipped to deal with this type of enemy. So she sends her Dothraki to the hills to take the country estates of the Miranese nobility, the most powerful, most wealthy Miranese, the ones who were most certainly involved in this, even if not every single one of them is involved, certainly this is hitting them where it hurts. Hitting their wealth is the way to get results, is at least given lack of other options. And it does have some results. 
one of the most important here, Miranese noblemen in the entire story is one we get to know a bit here. Of course, that's his Dozor Lorak, his Darzo Lorak, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, and his presentation is very, very subtle, but very not if you really key in on it. The nobleman has had wings of wiry red-black hair sprouting from his temples. They made him look as if his head were about to take flight. His long face was made even longer by a beard bound with rings of gold. His purple tokar was fringed with amethysts and pearls. Now, this just occurred to me, but we saw how he died in the show, which isn't necessarily meaningful to what's going to happen in the books, but maybe his head gets cut off. It's as his head was about to take flight. <laughs> maybe that's how he dies. He's beheaded. But more, more importantly here, his colors match Daenerys. Both styles here. He has red-black wings on his hair and a purple tokar and amethysts. Danny's eyes are amethyst. So this might be foreshadowing for their marriage. After all, one of the things that supposedly makes him such a good candidate for marriage is that he's a bridge. He's kind of a, a, a connecting point between the conqueror and the culture that she's trying to wear floppy ears to be a part of. They must have a Miranese king. They have to have Miranese this and that, or they won't, this won't work. And it's, it's all part of this Danny trying to be the leader they need them to be while also realizing that this culture might not work. They may not be reformable. They may, ha they may have to be a lot, she may have to get a lot bloodier and a lot more violent to, to deal with this. And he's got that devil imagery. Like so many of the slavers, their hair is made into horns or wings and it's red, black, and it smell, there's all the smells of brimstone. And it was big time when we got to Astapor for the first time. And that imagery has maintained itself throughout George depicting the slavers as devils and demons because they are. They're that in human form, even when they don't realize it. Devils and demons can be smooth and handsome and well-spoken. That's the devil. The devil of the Christian Bible is more of that. He's a, he's a manipulator. He's a smooth talker, more so than he is a big angry dude with a pitchfork shooting fire and attacking people. That's, that's not really the Christian Satan. He's a, he's a manipulator. He's a liar. He's a smooth guy. The fighting pits and the fighters themselves are a pivotal realization for her about what some people will do with their freedom, while of course setting her up for her huge flight on Drogon. Uh, some good takes from Nina here. This is our, with our first introduction to Hisdar, begging Daenerys for the sixth time to open the fighting pits. Danny is correct to note that Hisdar has a financial interest in this, having bought most of the fighting pit shares while their value was low. This dude stands to get crazy rich, and he's already crazy rich. Because the narrative points out that Hisdar is already not just rich, but, quote, famously and fabulously rich. That's so rich, considering this is a realm that has plenty of famously, fabulously rich people. This is a society that is very much built on enriching the 0.0001% at the expense of the 99.99999. And he is at the pinnacle of that 0.0001% <laughs> in terms of wealth. So that, that's, an, and of course, this is sly because yeah, the pits, he's like, yeah, the pits, um, eventually he's going to argue that yeah, you can have free people here. It doesn't have to involve slavery, but really... That's the slyness here. This is, this is all about a sideways reintroduction of slavery. This is an organization that depends on having slaves. In the long run, there won't be enough people that volunteer to die here. A lot of people volunteering to die in the pits now 
are doing so because that's how they were raised. That's one of the slavers, one of the slaves flat out says that he's like, look, I've been fighting in the pit since I was a kid. I'm good at it. I don't know how to do any. He doesn't say I'm not good at anything else, but that's pretty much the implication. Same thing happens in a few other cases here with non-pit fighters where they're like, well, you know, I was happier because I lived in a decent home and could just work on my artwork or what have you. And that's a better life than being out in the street. This is all transitional. These are the transition points. Long run, if you have people who aren't born into slavery, they aren't going to have lived their whole life in bondage and they won't want to return to the only thing they've known being slavery. When you have an entire new generation of people who aren't born into slavery, the whole society changes. And that's why reforming the society might be impossible because they're so built into this lifestyle. They're so... Everything goes back to slavery and the trappings of slavery and the things that encourage it. We even see it in the fighting pit. His dar is already trying to skirt the rules when he doesn't inform the dwarves that they're going to be killed by the lions. Danny gets livid at this and his dar almost argues back, even though it clearly, clearly breaks the promise he made not to have unwilling people in there. So he was already breaking that rule the first time they reopened the pits. How long would it be before he's like, oh, well, criminals can go in the pits. And Danny's like, well, criminals in the pits, okay, maybe, but only if they're murderers and rapists, not if they're debt slaves. She's kind of aware of how they're going to use criminality as a bludgeon against poor people to make them slaves and make them fight. And say, oh, this person's not a slave. They're a you know, it's a debt. They're, they're repaying a debt. There's just so many ways that the powerful can use semantics and tricks like that to basically get the same forms of bondage just under different names. Again, you can see this theme is so prominent. It was big in the Daener- I mean, the Tyrion chapter. It's big in the Veramir chapter. It's going to stay big throughout this book. Other topics, though, and one of the related topics, though, and how this society maybe just isn't reformable. A guy who probably thinks that way, that it's going to have to end in blood, is the shave pace. Guy has Mokandak. Nina says, let's keep a close look on this guy this time through. I agree. He is a really interesting figure. He's pretty honest, but he's also really brutal. At least seemingly. Well, the brutality, yes. The honesty, that's a little more of a maybe. He is a hardline. He's like, look, these slavers are never going to do, are never going to reform themselves. You just got to kill them all. That's it. He's, <laughs> that's the lesson here. There is no reforming this society. You have to kill, cut the head off of this snake, grow a new head out of new people. Or just not have it be a snake anymore. Maybe that's better. A harpy, kill right? the master. Yeah, kill all those masters. So I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a tough real world thing. Like how do you reform a society that's just this broken? And it may be that you can't. I am, I am kind of of that opinion that it's impossible. So, and then Scott has Mokondak seems to be the character pushing that agenda. He's like, look, just kill them. Like, yeah, bring them in a room, kill them off. Just give, take hostages and kill the kids if they don't do what they say, you know, kill this, that. Just be brutal with them because they're going to be brutal with you. By now, we've had this come up a few times. And what I mean here is fruit symbolism. Here's a quote. Viserion's tail lashed sideways, thumping the trunk of the tree so hard that a pear came tumbling down to land at Danny's feet. 
Recall the pears usually symbolize prosperity and success in part because of their tendency to overflow with juice. It's a good symbol for excess and abundance. But Viserion is part of the micro scene here. She is the dragon queen, and though they did not take the city for her, her dragons, they're the reason she has a huge following, and they are the reason she took control of the city. The Unsullied took control of the city. Her, her warriors did, and they're following her because of the dragons, because she's the mother dragon. She performed this miracle because she's this great leader. But she doesn't eat this pear. She doesn't take a bite. She doesn't pick it up. Wealth and luxury aplenty is all around her in many forms, but she has no time to enjoy even a single fruit of victory. Let's jump all the way ahead to a quote from Danny Nine, where she has this same realization herself. She's like, yeah, this is how it is. She would rather have drifted in the fragrant pool all day, eating iced fruit off silver trays and dreaming of a house with a red door. But a queen belongs to her people, not to herself. This is something to give Danny a lot of credit for. This is the kind of personal responsibility nowhere to be found in Robert, Cersei, Tywin, Ares, Viserys. It's a family trait amongst the current crop of Starks, and it's also there with some characters in, in various forms, like Stannis, Davos, Barris and Selmy, Brienne, a few others. But most of these are older characters. Most of them. And so they've had kind of time to develop this and they've had good influences. Danny's kind of getting here on her own and with mostly bad influences. Like her influences have been some of these characters, Viserys, Jorah Mormont, Illyrio, <laughs> Drogo. <laughs> Only now does he have someone that's pretty good that's, that's giving her noble ideals that's helping out a little bit with Selmy. But he just got there. <laughs> Dreaming of the Red Door. Let's talk about that for a minute. I compiled a short list of all the times she thinks of the Red Door. And it's a little stunning what it leads to. A little. A Game of Thrones, she thinks of it in her first chapter, her sixth chapter, which is based Oathrak, and her ninth chapter, which is when she's having the dragon dreams and Rago's death. So that's, that's when she's kind of in a, almost in a, her own coma there. Only once in, in A Clash of Kings. It's the House of the Undying. She thinks of it. So that's chapter four. Only once in A Storm of Swords. Chapter six, when she's just taken Marine and she's looking out over the city. But in A Dance with Dragons, the phrase, the red door, comes up six of the ten chapters that she has. So more times in this book than all the other books put together does the red door come up. No other point of view has a red door except for one example. And well, she'll never have that childhood she wishes she had had, but she will probably get this. The doors to the great hall were set in the mouth of a stone dragon. He told the servants to leave him outside. It would be better to enter alone. He must not appear feeble. Leaning heavily on his cane, Crescent climbed the last few steps and hobbled beneath the gateway teeth. A pair of guardsmen opened the heavy red doors before him, unleashing a sudden blast of noise and light. Crescent stepped down into the dragon's maw. Dragonstone, in other words, has red doors leading into its great hall, and that will probably be hers. No childhood red doors, but she gets this adult version Targaryen red doors from her ancestral home, her family's ancestral castle. I suspect Danny will have a reaction to seeing those doors because they're red. She's gonna be like, whoa, hold on a sec. There's the red doors, man. Yeah, Not, I wonder if she'll be like, those are the red doors or these are red doors. I don't think it's those red doors. She she pretty clearly remembers the red doors from Bravos or the red door from Bravos. 
but she might think of it as this is a meaningful point of destiny, you know? Mm. So, but it might also give her pause, like, wait, red doors, man. <laughs> is she going to want to paint it black? <laughs> so this too is her, though. It's not just about what she sees, but she is a dragon. Dragons burn and kill. That is a theme of this chapter as well. The lead up to the chapter's climax with Hosea's bones now, Danny's going to become deeply troubled by this, but it's also her mantra not to look back. And she has to struggle with that a little bit because, well, it, it becomes a little troubling later. She punishes a slaver here in this chapter because this, it, this, this slaver pisses her off. And rightfully so. This guy's a jerk. He's like, well, I should own the stuff this slave, former slave made because I'm the reason she knows how to do this stuff. And he's like, she's like, excuse me? <laughs> that is, you don't get it, man. We're trying to end this sort of, like this, you're asking for the kind of thing that I'm trying to end here. People owning other people's labor is, is we're, not, we're not down for that. You really don't get it, man. So that pisses her off. And he pun she punishes him for not knowing that person's name. Like, what's the name of this person with her loom? What is, what's her name? And he's like, I don't know. Elsa, 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 you know? The reason this is a little bit troubling is Danny's going to forget Hosea's name herself. Maybe looking back a little more is a good idea for her, but it bothers her badly when she realizes this. It's not like, oh, well, I forgot that name. She cries in guilt when she realizes she can't think of Hosea's name. She's like, I was supposed to remember that name. I don't. It was her responsibility. She, she holds it over herself. She's, you know, that's a sign of some personal responsibility, strong personal responsibility, but also a sign that she can't do it all. There's, it's impossible. There's this, this weight of, Ending thousands of years of slavery as a 13-year-old girl is just wild to imagine how much responsibility and effort and geez. <laughs> and, uh, but she still can, she still, I like that she's still able to joke about it a little bit, you know. A major reason why this chapter involves Danny uh, remarking that a queen needs cheeks of iron for all that sitting is she's having to account for so many things. And here's a quote that kind of spells that out for us. Marine had been sacked savagely after its fall. The stepped pyramids of the mighty had been spared the worst of the ravages, but the humbler parts of the city had been given over to an orgy of looting and killing as the city's slaves rose up and the starving hordes who had followed her from Yunkai and Astapor poured through the broken gates. Her unsullied had finally restored order, but the sack left a plague of problems in its wake. And so they came to see the queen. I like that wording there. I didn't notice this before. The plague of problems in its wake. The Pale Mary hasn't started yet, but that will perhaps be the biggest of the problems that comes in actual plague. It's hard to accept innocent deaths for us, for Danny as well, but it's also hopeless for the slave trade to end without great upheaval. It's a system that, like I said, thousands of years, there's no way this can be done without collateral damage. Even when Valyria held sway over this area, it was still an area of slaving. It was still used that way. It was just the slavers had people they answered to. Peaceful resistance is just never going to end this. This system won't be reformed from within. Peaceful resistance is what they want. They can deal with it. They're like, ha idiots, peaceful resistance. <laughs> That's what the Nathi and the lamb men do. And they love the Nathi and the lamb men. They're like, they make the best slaves. So yeah, I don't think it can be reformed. And if the, the end result of all that is what if Danny's like, look, I got to just torch this whole thing. I got to kill it all. And having done that, what will that say about her approach and attitude towards Westeros when she gets there? Is she going to fall into that same like 
this isn't fixable type of attitude. It has to be destroyed. And hey, what better person than me? Because who is better at bringing destruction than a dragon? A dragon with a big old army? It's really hard to fathom all this and to gather where it's going. Because Danny, on one hand, a lot of things are pointing that way. On another hand, Danny's internal monologue is constantly, overwhelmingly, about taking responsibility and trying to do right. So to me, if she ever gives up on trying to do right, it's because she's going to get fed up. It's because she's holding herself to this high standard and not enough other people in the entire world will be on that wavelength with her and it'll be frustrating. And like Aegon, like her grandfather, great-grandfather, Aegon the Unlikely, she might just get fed up and try desperate measures. I don't know. It's, it's heading that way. It's something they're going to give. So it's really fascinating to me how much conflict there is here from within her on what she wants to do and from outside of her on what she has to do or what's being forced on her and how that changes her. She thinks, I mean, she's thinking very much about even some of these people that aren't personally connected to her. Nina writes that even before she finds out which individual unsullied soldier was killed, she muses about this man's personal origins. She's curious about who this guy was. This is so very much the opposite of Tyrion just now, of Illyria, who's worse, or Varamir. They don't care at all about these victims or about these other people, but Daenerys is enraptured by the thought of who this person was, what kind of life they had, and how she is responsible partly for where this for this person's death. She thinks about the, their cult, their nation of origin by looking at his appearance. It's like maybe he's from Lys or Volantis, and he was probably captured by corsairs and sold into bondage and ended up here. She's trying to honor his whole life and her thoughts. It's no one else does this. <laughs> no one else does this. Ned Stark doesn't do this. John doesn't do this. I mean, I'm not saying they're not good people. Of course they are. They just aren't good in this particular way. They don't have this interest in other people's lives to this degree, to people that don't necessarily matter to them. They don't, even though she, this person never had a direct impact on her life, she's still very interested and wants to know. She's so fascinating. <laughs> oh, Danny's great. Here's another quote, though. This is, again, her just wrestling with this whole concept but also it is filled with lore. This is a fantastic quote. A crown should not sit easy on the head. One of her royal forebears had said that once. Some Aegon, but which one? Five Aegons had ruled the seven kingdoms of Westeros. There would have been a sixth, but the usurper's dogs had murdered her brother's son when he was still a babe at the breast. If he had lived, I might have married him. Aegon would have been closer to my age than Viserys. Boom, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. Danny already told us the, the crown was heavy back when she first got it in Karth. I mean, this is a, she understands on some level without all the experience to back it up, but just conceptually, she gets that. She, she's like, yeah, this is not, I'm, the crown isn't about designating who gets the most stuff or who's the best person. It's about who has the most responsibilities, who has to lead. It's the, it's the attitude you want from a leader, quite frankly. But here's also, of course, going on in this, in this quote is Aegon Sixth talk. Uh, obviously, he's just been slyly introduced in Tyrion's chapter a little bit more. Arguably, I don't know when you would actually say he was technically introduced. When is the first clues for him are way back in the Game of Thrones, really. 
But it's really all peaking here. The, the, the clue building that peaks with his actual in- introduction. So yeah, he would be the sixth and he is the one that's on the shy maid and she is the one that would have married him. She's right about all that and that is what Varus and Illyria want even now. So that's really cool. And another thing about Danny that I want to appreciate is that how little power and wealth matter to her. I mean, power to her is a means to an end to, to get results, which makes her similar to Euron, except that Euron is so corrupt in so many other ways. What Euron wants with power is evil, whereas what Danny wants with power is good. And it's very uncommon. Um, Tywin even, Tyrion to some degree, these folks are very much even impacted by the amount of power they have. And it, goes, it can go to your head. But Danny, it goes to her head in a different way. Like, I need, I need to be responsible with this power. Someone like Varamir, perfect example. He just, he had all this power, more of this power, and he used it only to enrich himself, entirely to slake his own lust, desires. It's the polar opposite of the internal monologue that we get from Danny here. Nina points out a couple of comparisons to other Targaryen leaders here, which is really important. It's one of the things that Fire and Blood does really well is show a lot of different rulership styles. Danny is playing, sort of not playing with, but trying out different leadership styles because she doesn't know how her forebears ruled and they hadn't faced any challenges like this. They never tried to rule Slaver's Bay. Nina writes that Daenerys holding court reminds her of Queen Rhaenys. Rhaenys, like any other Targaryen queen, apart from maybe Visenya, actually sat the Iron Throne after the conquest, be, uh, sort of co-ruling with Aegon. She dispensed judgments and did things while Aegon was away ruling elsewhere or doing other projects. One of her, one example is that she created some regularity in how judgments could be dealt out. Like she curbed a lot of the beating of women. Uh, didn't get rid of it, but reduced it to much, much less than what it was. And little things like that, something like that that Danny's not even aware of. Danny isn't aware of these type of histories. These are kind of why we hope she reads some of these books because she might get some of these good examples. It's like, oh, my ancestors did figure this part out. I can learn from that. There's also shades of Jaehaerys I, she says, when, when Jah- uh, Nina is, that is. When Jaehaerys came to the throne after the death of Magor, he pardoned those lords who had sworn themselves to Magor while executing the worst of Magor's people, like his torturers and his jailers, the people that had all this, you know, they were corrupted by their own deeds. The same kind of thing I was referring to at the beginning where if you just feel hate constantly and are hated constantly, it's going to be part of who you are. If you live a life of torturing people, that's going to have a bad impact. You were probably not a good person to begin with, quite frankly. So that kind of personality has to go. That can't be part of the new order. We have to reset all that and try to have some good. Her ancestors have dealt with a lot of similar problems. It'd be interesting to see if George wrote Fire and Blood to show things that she should be doing, things that she will be learning later, or if we're supposed to be seeing history repeat itself via rulers kind of repeating some of the same mistakes or repeating the same successes somewhere in between maybe is more likely. As the floppy ears thing, that's the thing Aegon had to do. He had to adopt this worship of the seven. He decided that was one of the best ways to properly rule to get the kingdom to accept him was to be one of them. It's happening here. The green grace is like, you're always going to be considered an outsider. But if you marry a Miranese guy, someone who's popular and well-liked, that's going to help a lot. 
And if you look like a Miranese person, if you dress up like one, that's going to make a big deal. You need to do that kind of thing. Same thing is going to be true in Westeros. She's going to need to fit in to be accepted. And that might be a big source of conflict if the way they want her to fit in is at odds with what she thinks is best for the kingdom. It's easy to face a city on the horizon. It's easier to assault and sack and destroy a city than it is to rule it. It's simple to say, here I am, I'm the good guy. Here's all my good guy friends. Bears are the slavers over there. Let's kill them. That's simple. But undoing what they've done to the people and the system, that's the hard part. They're, that's where it's harder to see who your friends are and who your enemies are. And it's not like on a battlefield. It's like kind of what Barrison will get into later in the book, how he doesn't have any patience for this sort of intrigue, how he's not built this way. It's not what he's learned to do. He's so much more comfortable on a battlefield where, it's, where he knows who his enemies are. And that's what Danny is feeling here without necessarily being able to put it into words as so clearly as Barristan, because, well, Danny doesn't exactly have nearly as much battlefield experience as, as Barristan does. But still, George is brilliant here, not just in thinking up these details and crafting these mini stories and showing them from multiple perspectives, giving not just two sides to the story, but countless in between and with lots of overlap and familiarity. We know Danny's being noble. We know Danny had best intentions and in trying to do the right thing. But if you're one of these regular Miranese who doesn't know any of that, you don't know that she's trying to do good. You don't see inside her head like we readers do. All they see is their house got burned, got looted by some random people from another city that, you know, may have killed their mother. How are they supposed to look at Danny like a savior? And this, again, rolls up into this whole giant conflict of how the hell do you fix any of this? And what I see coming maybe is maybe a parallel to young Griff's frustration at being unable to beat Tyrion in Syvash. Remember what happens there? He gets, he gets frustrated and he throws the board over and is like, pick all that up. He gets mad and gets a little bit violent. That's maybe a, a sign of things to come. Well, it might also be for Danny. If, it's just, if it just keeps not working, if it just keeps on failing, if it keeps... If she's not making any progress, she might get frustrated and do things she regrets. We do actually see that. At one point, she gets so mad, she sanctions the torture of innocence, of probable innocence. Uh, that, that's coming later. It's a very dark moment. But this is what I'm referring to, is this, this, this frustration, this brutality, this, it builds up within her and it eats away at her good nature and her responsible nature. Tyrion, and of course, in the Syvass example, what piece was it that Tyrion used to get young Griff to flip out, it was his dragon. And that's symbolic. It's easier to be a dragon. It's easier to just blow things up than to fix them. Joe writes, the, the, the Thraki vibe here is pretty strong with line, the lion's pelt from Drogo making a reappearance. Still something that is a source of comfort for Danny. Irian Jiki giving some lines about Jothraki's suspicions. And well, that is probably some foreshadowing because Danny is going to be ending up on the Dothraki Sea at the end of this book. And right back to all that Dothraki stuff, which will be very interesting. Also, they're talking about it's bad luck to touch the dead. That's a Dothraki um, cultural value. That's particularly true when the Pale Mare comes. It might be part of where that taboo comes from in the first place. A lot of times, corpses are a source of disease. It's a good reason to stay away from them. Hey, it's built on a fundamental part of nature. 
There's more in the nature of eunuchs here, and uh, there's an important quote here. Even those who lack a man's parts may still have a man's heart, your grace. That's really important. Humanizing the unsullied, humanizing the... They are heavily altered people, given all their training, but they are people. All, all the things, all what they've been through, and it's an interesting comparison to Illyrio's eunuchs and what they've been through and what they're what they've become. And well, how is this going to go in the long term for Danny's Unsullied? Are they just going to be wiped out by war and battle, or is that going to be part of a dream of spring? When like, where are they going to live now? What are they going to be settled somewhere? Are they going to have like a little town where they all? They live together like a little unsullied community or something like that. I don't know. It's part of the whole Aragorn's tax plan thing that George represents with that one phrase, which is all these things have to be dealt with. They don't just vanish. These are people within the story. If you want to tell a human story where all the characters have full arcs and you don't just forget things and leave them off because they're not part of the narrative. Well, here's a good example. What's going to happen to all these people in the long run? Great catch by Joe here. Viserion's eyes are described as pools of molten gold. And Viserion is named for Viserys, molten gold. Oh, good one. Good one. And also Rhaegal and Eerie. This is an interesting connection Joe makes here. A nice little hint of frustrating times for them as well. Lots of people are frustrated, but Rhaegal apparently is having the hardest time of it. He's adjusting to life in captivity worse than Viserion burning six men during his imprisonment. And of course, he kills Quentin. Uh, so that's a little foreshadowing for that, I suppose. And they're maybe mirroring Danny's inner rage. It's not entirely clear how much of a, the bond, the dragon bonding, how much of her emotions pass back and forth. But it's a realistic thing. Skin-changing bond, obviously, is, is a matter of fantasy. But human dogs sense their master's moods. Why not dragons too? Uh, so I think that's a, a good theory that Danny's rage is being on display via the her dragons. It certainly comes up in Fire and Blood as well. For there's one particular example where the blacks and the greens are kind of arrayed against each other at in a at a wedding, I think, or I forget. And the dragons are are angry at each other because they're feeling the the rage from their riders as they stand across from their rivals and they're like looking at their enemies like, God, I hate that guy. And the dragon's like, <laughs> like, yeah, you hate that guy. And we have to think about Danny as a mother to her children in some of the same terms as we do other mothers because, well, bad parenting leads to awful humans that go out and kill people and do awful things to the world. That's not different for animals. It's just that humans have less responsibility for that, and, you know, for animals in the wild. But if you take ownership or control over an animal, you are responsible for what that animal does to other people for the most part. And that's particularly true here because her animals are particularly powerful and dangerous. So when it's, it's right for Danny to take responsibility for Hosea, though I imagine a lot of dragon riders in the past did not. They're just like, yep, comes with the territory. We dragon riders, I mean, these dragons exist. They do what they will. You know, uh, I'm not responsible for what that thing does. Hmm, yeah, I don't agree, but that is likely a common enough attitude. So Danny is constantly second guessing here because of she's getting lots of different opinions. And a lot of these opinions are from people with agendas. And she doesn't have opinions from people who are detached, except for Selmy. And Selmy isn't exactly a plotter. He's a, you know, a king's guard. She's thinking about the three betrayals and where those might pop up. 
And that's constantly in the back of her mind. So there's all these magical elements, prophecies weighing down on her while also these incredible weights of trying to rule this city. So much going on. Barristan's a bit of a relief by comparison. Jorah, I mean, compared to Jorah, that is, because Jorah is constantly trying to box her in, keeping her to himself. Well, Selmy is already making new knights. <laughs> He's already making more knights for her, where Barristan, or ra rather, Jorah kind of wanted to be like the only knight <laughs> around her at all. Denny and Cersei, also very much tied to prophecies about betrayal. That's a bit of a parallel between them. Danny constantly threatened with death, whereas Cersei only thinks she is. Uh, but she is also eventually facing death because of the Valonqar. But uh, it's still, I would say that Cersei or that Danny handles it better. Mm, yes. Nina writes, there's a bit of a fairy tale joke when it comes to the gift of Cleon, king of Astapor. Cleon gives Danny slippers, and as Danny notes, he's proposed to her a number of times. As Danny finds, however, the slippers he sends, while beautiful, are too small. It's a bit of a play on Cinderella, <laughs> though instead of a humble serving girl being raised to queenship by a noble prince fitting the slipper on her foot, we have a queen already in power rejecting a marriage with a thoroughly bad dictator king by finding the slippers far too small for her feet. She's like, this is not a good fit. And of course, Astapor did go horribly wrong. No, there's no other way to put it. Danny did not handle that right. It was, a, I guess it's experience for her now. She can learn from that mistake, but it, it was an abject failure really rough. And that's part of why it's, she has a great need for advisors. Even if Tyrion won't be a great advisor, he at least will, would have seen that coming. He would have been like, look, don't, this is not going to work. You got to do a better, you got to do something different than this. And of course, this touches on Quaith's prophecy. Lots of people are coming to her. Some of them will help. Some of them won't. Some of them will perhaps be a little, a little sum of, a little column A, a little column B. Some of them are going to help and hurt. A little, uh, a little more contrast between Danny and Varamir here, stripping the skins from beasts and wearing their hides and hair. That's something that Joe referred to indirectly here. He's a different take on it. Uh, Dan Danny clings to the Krakar cloak Drago, Drogo brought her. Varamir might have believed that the boy who stabbed him only did so over the cloak, but Thistle correctly noted that he was actually stabbing Varamir for robbing his dead mother. As with that nameless boy, Daenerys clings to the Krakar cloak, not because of the fur itself, but because of what the fur represents emotionally, the connection to. Drogo, who she loved, which maybe that love's a little problematic given the circumstances, but still, it's real whether it's problematic or not. She definitely feels it. And Varamir saw the animals he used as tools and used them even when it was clear they were being, they hated him and rejecting him, but he conquered them anyway. With Daenerys, though, she shows this care and concern for her dragons. She pets Viserion, talks to him, even if it isn't, even if all her moves aren't ideal, her instincts are. Again, the polar opposite. Okay. Dornish Dame also says, find it interesting in this chapter that she refers to waking the dragon, a callback to a Game of Thrones Danny one, only this time Danny is the dragon to be feared, not Viserys. Yeah, before that phrase frightened her because it was associated with her brother traumatizing her. Um, he would, you know, hurt her physically as well as scare her emotionally. And here be dragons with the super chat says, hit that like button. Yeah, appreciate that, Stephen. Please do. Please hit that like button. You'd be surprised. Stephen wouldn't, but a lot of the rest of y'all would be wouldn't might be surprised at how much the YouTube algorithm responds to likes and comments and things like that. So you are helping spread the word about Valar Remedis just by doing that. 
also by writing reviews on places like iTunes or Podbean or Acast or Stitcher, wherever you listen to us. I'm not even sure. There's so many podcast outlets these days, but all of them contain places for you to leave reviews that effectively just get pushed back to iTunes. But same difference. That's where it's all hosted. As usual, I'll be listing off the percentages and times of how far our progress bar is. A little fun thing I like to do at the end. Last week, hey, there was nothing last week, but we did put out... What about an, the week before? Oh, yeah, that was zero also. <laughs> but we did put out an episode on House Blackwood. We put out House Blackwood Part 2. And right now, we are in the Patreon-only period of the Duskendale, Defiance of Duskendale episode. So maybe by the time you hear this, that episode's already out. So we had two scripted episodes come out in between uh, Valar Veritas for Feast and Dance. So check those out. A lot of work went into those. A lot of different people helping out, doing good work. This was only 131 minutes, 26 seconds, despite the length of the episode. That's part of these introductory chapters. Often there's a lot to say, especially when it's a new character like Baramir and there's so much lore in his chapter. That was the longest one. Uh, that we spent time on. It's not the actual longest chapter, but hey, it's the, all three of these chapters today were about the same length. We went through 131 minutes, 26 seconds of an audiobook length. As always, I say I use audiobook lengths because page lengths are uh, different. Book editions have different number of pages. Also, audio of books have half pages, like the end of a chapter, the chapter ends without occupying the full page. So the page count isn't totally accurate, but with audiobooks, it's a little more accurate. This is only 4.5% of the book, these first three chapters, so we have so much more to go. 19 episodes total. It'll take us to get through A Dance with Dragons. I'm going to savor every single one. We'll have our usual wrap-up episode at the end. I'm excited to be getting started. I'm super happy to have so many of you all with us going through this book and beyond. Valoridus is back. Valoridus is here, and it's awesome. We're having so much fun. Go to our website for older episodes. Shea put a lot of work into arranging it, categorizing it, so you can go directly to each chapter within each episode. You don't have to skip around and like, where was that one chapter in here? The timestamps are all right there. It's really nice, really smooth. I don't think we mentioned too many of our other episodes in this one. We mentioned that Radio Westeros Vermeer episode. I don't recall mentioning in too many of our other episodes besides the ones I just mentioned that were scripted. So, but that's going to be, uh, of course, a regular feature. And at the end of every episode, I try to mention any of other scripted content that could expand on some of these topics. We certainly talk, we certainly have a series on the Werewoods. That's somewhat relevant. Next time, John 1, Threats Beneath a Hinge of the World, aka the one where Melisandre says, You know nothing, Jon Snow. Ran 1. The gang learns Cold Hands is dead, aka the one where they eat Night's Watch deserters. Mmm, Night's Watch deserters. Tyrion 2, on the Valyrian Road, aka a two-headed dragon dream. Tyrion could definitely live in the world of On the Road, but <laughs> yeah. like, he really fits into that whole thing. <laughs> uh, moving on. The Merchant's Man, here comes the sun's son. <laughs> A.K.A. George's pen swings in a cruel arc. Little darling. Yes, that is what I was going for. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, everybody. Thanks to Ashea for handling so much at once. Thanks to everyone who came and watched live and shares and spreads the word. Huge thanks to Joe and Nina for their significant contributions to this episode. 
to past episodes and to future episodes. Thank you to our History of Westeros mods who post every chapter with artwork and quotes every week to lead the discussion there. That's Scott, Jennifer, Ari, uh, Rebecca, Laura, and Tommy. Thanks also to our Flick commenters who have great discussions as well on the chapters. Every episode, we throw out several names from different people who have contributed from over there, as we do from Facebook and the other places. Slack and Discord, please check those out as well. Lots of good discussions happening there and other community stuff. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and our video intro. Claradox.de is his site. Thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Rebeatus music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for our regular History of Westeros intro outro. Thanks to our Benjineer for making our sound quality better than it would be. His expertise is in play every episode as well. Thank you to, very much to our patrons who provide financial support. You all are our rock, our casterly rock, never fallen. No one's ever taken it. We're going to keep it that way. That's how I think of y'all. Without y'all, where would we be? I don't know. I don't want to think about that. So much praise to you all. If you want to become one of the members of our patron ranks, again, that's at historyofwestros.com. There's patron links plus other ways to support that are not patron. And again, please go over to Here Be Dragons. Check them out. Talking about the Sworn Sword, whether you're watching live or hearing this after the fact, you can catch that episode at any point. Until next week, we'll see you, folks. Welcome back to Valar Reritas.